Hi, I'm Mark Twidell, and this is the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Happy birthday, Matt. Reading Hellboy comics and talking to our friends. Hellboy Book Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Are we loveless? And I'm Lobster Johnson. What? <laughs> and I'm Matt Strackbine. <laughs> you, you should have been like, I'm Lobster Johnston. Yeah. <laughs> Did I say Johnston? Yes. Yeah, oh, it. well. His cousin. It, it's the knockoff version. Yeah. Hey, gang, the day that this episode comes out, it's Matt's birthday. It's Matt's birthday. Yay. Matt's birthday. Happy birthday, Matt. Happy birthday, Matt. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy Thank you very pre-birthday. Much. Yeah, so... Birthday member. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. I don't want to gush too much, but just, uh, you know, having you on the podcast has been great. It's been so amazing having you on. I think uh, it's also kind of... It gives us some legitimacy, I feel, too, because you have kind of an inside track here, and you've actually worked on some of the Hellboy books. So, anyway, I really appreciate... Mostly we're stoked about it because friendship. I know, and that's been the most amazing part is... You know, what an awesome friend you've become to all of us and to everybody on the show. So anyway, happy birthday. And I'm so glad that we could hang out with you every week. Yeah, without you, it's just a bunch of nerds talking about (laughs) You're able to actually provide us like valuable insight. I'm the senior resident nerd. (laughs) It's going on my business card. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Happy birthday, Matt. It's been a joy having you on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, you guys know I love being on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it's a joy to listen to your podcast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was going to talk about your plugs a little bit. So I've been checking out web clues that's been going on on your Twitter and Instagram Mm -hmm. page. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's a new comic strip that I came up with based on the fact that a lot of media these days, independent media, is just a guy staring at a webcam with a microphone. Yeah. (laughs) To me, that's the perfect comic panel. So I've just started making a comic strip based on that format, and it feels really natural and hopefully people it resonates with people who watch independent media and if not maybe it'll you know get them to give it a try but right. so so far so good i have a whole bunch planned out already and drawn and written but you know i don't want to get too far ahead because it's supposed to be topical right so, right yeah but uh, instead of doing politics humor it's humor about the people that talk about politics right right <laughs> that's what's been so funny about it all the different yeah. characters yeah it's been very enjoyable it's um it, it also gives me a nice uh doonesbury vibe i, yeah, I really yeah, enjoy it it's been a cool. lot of fun yeah the modern day version perhaps yeah it's not like it's like it's not exactly like it but what it's is, the feeling i'm so sorry what is a dunes what is doonesbury doonesbury uh, was a comic book strip comic strip in the sun in the uh, paper it's a right. sunday comic okay yeah not, right. not really a comic book Right, it wasn't a comic book, you're right. It okay. was it, but they did collect them later, okay. but yeah, and it was kind of political, uh semi-political content and kind of like subtle uh how yeah. to describe that kind of humor, but it was I guess meta before you would have said meta. Yeah. Yeah, it started out as a college comic strip, I believe mm. by Gary Trudeau, he's the creator, and it was supposed to be just about some college students, and those characters remained in the strip. I, I mean, I believe to this day, but it became more and more about people you would see in the news. Mm. So like in the 80s, he would do Prince Charles. And I think it was just like a floating nose <laughs> <laughs> that that would talk, okay. you know. And so it's like and then, if, if the political comics, instead of just being like one panel, if it was just a whole series. Yeah. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and all these characters were reoccurring. Right. So it wasn't That's just making fun of what the president did yesterday. It's like this guy plotted out like storylines. Mm-hmm. And then you could drop the topical stuff in, like yeah. sprinkle it in as, as needed. Okay. Think of like a more subdued version of Bloom County. I don't know what that is. I'm so sorry. Those, oh, you don't know Bloom <laughs> County. Opus, oh, man. That Opus one's... the Penguin. Oh, man. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So we, we really need to start Calvin that new Hobbes. podcast. <laughs> Have you read this? Yeah. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. So, so what you're saying is it's like web comics, but in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, that's what it was. But anyway, um, and so they can check out the web clues on your Twitter page, which is at the letter hack and i i drop them on there every monday wednesday and saturday and then bonus every now and then too in between nice but i collect them all at matchtrackfind.weebly.com great great and also plug your she's coming over to drop off thanksgiving food your mom is coming over right now yeah so i don't know if she understands that that's not chill sorry about that you can get her on the podcast get her on the podcast get your mom on here all right she read comics y'all are cool with that i'm just you know it's hap. this is happening and i'm not so i don't know what else to say we live right we live really close to daniel's mom which has been really nice it's nice but yeah but then we also are subject to the poppins hey i love my mother (laughs) yes i'll go on air saying i love my mother and i love seeing my mother but i'm just preparing like i'm not about to tell my mom she can't come over i'm just not happening so y'all are about to meet my mom um but matt also plug your podcast and your instagram really quick also so you could check me out on instagram at at friends of Strackbine, where that's like a mix of art and you know whatever i'm doing that day my dog or something <laughs> and my podcast which i am going to be coming into some like actual podcast equipment like a microphone and stuff like oh that. nice oh, wow yeah so it's kind of like inevitably going to get a little bit more professional although that wasn't always my intention it's really just like a uh audio diary for myself sure it's the letter hacks podcast so if you type in matt strackbine the letter hack you're bound to find a whole bunch of stuff by me yeah awesome all right and we've also got the buff raffle is going on craig mcknight is hosting the raffle over at mike mignol's art on facebook i wanted to talk about that this week Federico Mele is. Oh wait, so there's a there, there's the door right here. Um, go ahead and get the door, Aubrey. This is great. Hello. Hey, come in. Sorry. No, that's okay. Get I need mom. everybody to know what's happening right now. I, my mother just brought me a gigantic bag of oranges. How many pounds of oranges would you say this is? I'm gonna go. Four, five. Four, five pounds of oranges. I'm, and this is just by me looking at it, it's like not ten pounds of oranges here. here. That's yeah. the. Is that the rice dressing? This is the rice dressing. The rice dressing from rice Lake Charles, Louisiana. My has a satsuma tree, so we always just have. Some That's great. Oranges. And then I've got some. <laughs> got some rice dressing. That's like a three-pound bag of rice dressing from my grandmother, who makes very, very good rice dressing. It's very good. So yeah. Deliciously sweet. <laughs> <laughs> say you, just say hi on the microphone right here. Oh, Will you just here. say hi? Hi, it's mom. <laughs> the best mom ever. All right, I'm Thank you. Love, love you. I was just oh. doing a drive-by. Yes. <laughs> nice to see you again. Nice to pop in. We like the pop-in over here. Oh. Oh, 
That was amazing. Wow, well, uh, that was great. I never thought I never thought that we'd have a guest appearance from Danielle's mom. <laughs> she sounds a lot like Danielle. She, she really does. They have a lot of the same mannerisms. Okay, I'm going to start this thing over with the raffle, though. Okay. All right, and we've also got the buff raffle going on at Mike Mignola's Art on Facebook. Craig McKnight is hosting this awesome raffle. You can win original art by Mignola, Lawrence Campbell, Matt Strackbein, James Heron. Who else? Ross Radke is on there. Um, Christopher Mitten's been added. Mike Norton's been added. Stan Sakai's on there. Matt Smith? Did you say that? Oh, I didn't say Matt Smith. He's also on there. There's also those like uh, cool artist editions with the remarks in them. Yeah, those are on there. You've also got Michael Avenoming. You've got Ben Stenbeck. Yeah, you can win original art from all these people. There are over 40 prizes. The raffle tickets are only $5 a piece, so get on there. You can win some amazing stuff, and all the donations will go towards worthy causes, supporting cancer research, Alzheimer's Research, COPD, and Brain Tumor Associations. Thanks again to Craig McKnight, and thank you all the artists and companies that are contributing prizes to this awesome raffle. You know, if I were in Craig McKnight's position, I I just wonder how many times a day I would think, I could just keep this art. I could just hit the road (laughs) and nobody would ever see me again. Oh, Oh. (laughs) It'd be so hard to just sit on that, knowing that, you're not going to keep any of it. Oh, I know. He can't it's enter it either. Yeah. He needs something special for that. So yes. needs to hook this guy up. Yes, he's he's done such an amazing job. And he's also selling a bunch of his stuff. A portion of those sales are also going towards the raffle. So, yeah, he's a really amazing guy. As of right now, the raffle has raised over $7,000. So let's keep it going. I think that we could get to ten. Wow. Wow. Great. Hey, book club gang. I was so excited by the surprise appearance of Danielle's mom that I forgot to mention that Federico Mele has been added to the Buff Holiday Raffle. Federico Mele is an awesome painter. You should follow him on Instagram at F-E-D-E underscore M-E-L-E. And he's also a member of Mike Mignola's Art on Facebook. He's a member of the community. So thank you so much, Federico, for donating to the raffle. And I also wanted to thank Mark Tweedell. He submitted his intro after we had already recorded. But thank you so much, Mark. It's great to hear from you. And hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. Back to the show. And if you've been enjoying the show, give us a review for the holidays. Tell a friend. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way to spread the word so that way more people can find the podcast and more people can become part of the book club. And now we're going to move on to our listener feedback. So get out your trades and floppies. Get out your hardback copies. Digital print is fine. You can read along in time. We had some listener feedback on Hellboy in Mexico. Remember that from way oh, wow. back? Yeah. I like when people chime in on stories that we haven't talked about in a long time. Jorge Cueros9177 said, In Hellboy vs. the Aztec Mummy, there is a panel with an interview by Jorge Cardona in the BPRD files. In the interview, it says he is from Arapuato, a small city just 50 kilometers away from my hometown in the state of Guanajuato. I wonder what made Mike put that city in the book. It's even the staple city in the state, but it's a great thing to show people. Yeah, I think that was really interesting. So when you catch these little towns in there, what makes them put these little towns in there? I wonder if that's 
Mignola or the writers or they just look it up on a map. You know what I mean? Well, that's actually pretty cool. It's been fun. A lot of book club members have been like, yeah, I found my hometown in there. They talked about my city in there. Obviously, they've talked about Houston a lot. They blew Houston up. Yeah. <laughs> they were, we were too awesome for them. <laughs> <laughs> and we have even more feedback on our discussion with Abe Sapien Regressions. Mark Tweedell said, on Broom and keeping stuff from his adopted kids... I don't think it was malicious, but I do think it was condescendingly paternalistic. Broom has this flaw in that he always thinks he knows best. Perhaps it comes with his aristocratic upbringing. We saw this quite a bit in BPRD 1948, and it poisoned his interactions with Dr. Ryu. For his perspective, he adopted three nuclear bombs, and I think he's keeping what he sees as possible chain reaction inducing information from them until he understands how to diffuse them honestly i think he was looking for a way to cheat fate i don't think he liked how powerless he was to spare them the weight they'd one day bear and it drove him to do something really shitty i think he felt like he needed to have answers in order to talk about this stuff not realizing the value in simply talking to them broom is far from an emotionally intelligent person keep in mind in the order we've been gaining information, we understand a lot more about those recordings than Broom did. Out of context, the answers we've been getting are downright baffling mysteries. For all Broom knew, Hellboy was the beast of the apocalypse, Abe was a conduit to an Ogdruhem or worse, and Liz had a power that could level entire civilizations, and she could barely even control it. He was afraid for them, and I think that fear is what led a 75-year-old man to travel to the Arctic looking for a way to defuse them rather than talk to his kids. It's so very stereotypically old-fashioned British male. So I understand that part of Broom. I don't agree with it or condone it, though. It was really shitty. No, but that adds a layer of nuance to that character and their motivations. And I definitely appreciate that, for sure. I think that that's, that's interesting. That to think about it that deep, mm -hmm. like, oh, he's got this level of concern for all this stuff. So there, that also adds, like, oh, there was a little bit of a level of... He kept them at arm's length in a way, kind of right, a thing. So there's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot there. And he he he, did, he certainly didn't treat his troops right in the 1940s. We saw some stuff where, you know, all that stuff with Anders, and then there were some parts where Stegman was trying to tell him, warn him about Anders, but he was too concerned with Doctor Ryu and all that stuff, and he kind of like pushed all that to the side. And then I think some agents ended up dying. So right. we've seen that he sometimes his interests are too narrow-minded that he misses out on some of these other things maybe that would have inspired him to set those not that it's ended up being the right decision either or maybe i don't know it did but like when he's keeping everyone at arm's length he's like oh i'm trying a different approach about right, it. I'm right. kind of trying not to get that fucked up again i don't know interesting yeah, always good feedback from Mark Tweedo. I kind of agree with what Mark's saying. Yeah, yeah. It just adds a different layer to yeah. it to try to think about it from that yeah. point of view. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Jan Niklas said Jan Niklas, book club member. He said, Besides that, I'm not sure it would have really helped any of them. Hellboy. Oh, hello, son. Do you have a minute? I would like to talk to you about your role in the apocalypse. Right. Hellboy leaves the room because he gives no fucks. <laughs> Abe. Oh, hello, my boy. What would you say if I told you you're fish Jesus from, a ho from whom a new species will be born? Right. Abe thinks about it 
And then that's not socially appropriate. Like, you know, right. Yeah. Or, or else you can't be close to those people anymore. That's so interesting that he's yeah. so close to them that he can't bring it up. That's really interesting. And he said that Liz would that. have destroyed herself yeah. with or without powers. She's that kind of person. But yeah, they could have helped her better. But considering how backwards medicine and psychiatrics were back then, uh, yeah. when she was a child, she came out of it incredibly well-rounded. The best thing that can be said about Broom is that he let his children be themselves, so they became their own persons. And that was already very progressive from someone who was born in the early 20th century in Europe, no less. He could have been a patriarch, but he didn't. Hmm. I thought those were great comments on that. Yeah. Insightful. Jason Abaddon also said regarding Broom not telling anyone about Abe, Liz, and Hellboy session tapes, I think Broom realized that for whatever reason, fate brought these amazing people to him and that all three had a role to play in prophecy. I wonder if Liz had repressed memories or if Hellboy remembered his time in hell prior to coming to Earth. Yeah, what's on those tapes? What's on those Hellboy and Liz yeah. tapes? Right? He couldn't I'm wondering. Bring, I'm a total, I've totally flipped on this. He couldn't bring himself to talk to them about it. Right. Yeah. That's that was, so it's heartbreaking and sad, but yeah. also like you kind of get it on that level, right? Like you're like, oh, no, how could I t- drop this on somebody? Right. I'm going to try and help them, but I can't tell them. Yeah. Because I'm sad. <laughs> do you think he would have been able to help Daimyo? Because, you know, he never really met Daimyo. Oh, okay. If he had been able to, like, hypnotize him and stuff like that? Yeah. I don't hmm. know. That's ah, interesting. Yeah. What would he have done with that information? Yeah. At least he'd have information that he probably would. But, ooh, man, that would be interesting. Yeah. There's your what-if comic right there. I know. Good feedback. <laughs> yeah. Regarding BPRD, Hell on Earth, Exorcism, and The Exorcist, Mark Tweedell said, So the weird thing about Exorcism is that it got shifted around pretty drastically. It first appeared around the same time as Devil's Engine, back when Liz had gone missing and the Salton Sea, Ogdraham, had appeared at the end of King of Fear. The Exorcist was a sort of 11th hour project. Basically, Cameron Stewart was given Ashley Strode to develop however he wanted, but then something changed. Suddenly, an upcoming story needed Ashley Strode, and Scott Alley had to let Cameron Stewart go and say, hey, I know we had you do whatever you wanted with that character, but we kind of unexpectedly need her again. And Cameron was already on Batgirl and Fight Club 2 and ridiculously busy with both. And I think he wanted to do more with Ashley, so he kept trying to impossibly make his schedule squeeze it in, but at some point they realized there was no way to get it done before BPRD Hell on Earth ended. So writer Chris Robertson and artist Mike Norton, who worked super fast, had to step in. I imagine they felt like they were laying down railway tracks while a train was barreling up behind them. BPRD Hell on Earth, which had been consistently a monthly book since it started, suddenly stopped for two or so months so this arc could come out before the final five issues. So there's a part of me that wishes we got more Ashley Strode tales on her own, learning the ropes of being an exorcist. I could read an entire omnibus of that with ease. And on people being offended by this series... Remember we talked about the The rosaries and all that? At one point, someone edited Wikipedia's Hellboy page and replaced every instance of hell with four asterisks. (laughs) Oh my god. Nice. (laughs) And he also said that he agreed with your Oda Benga casting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That was uh, Louis Gossett Jr., right? Right. Also, I know that... Did we mention this before that Oda Benga is a real... Oh, no, you say Person. this. So Danielle forgot to talk about it. I forgot to talk, I forgot to talk about that. Otabengo was a real person in history. And so strictly talking about just like this character that is named the exact same name, but is right. not 
supposed to be a depiction i don't know if i didn't realize that that was a real person that's a real person yeah and so, so i didn't even look into the name but you were showing me this the other day yeah, yeah. so this person otabenga was this is okay this is going to get really heavy really fast so sure. i'm really sorry otabenga was in a human zoo, was in a series of human zoos right oh. so yeah i mean like no disrespect i'm not trying to cast the historical figure just this like in the comic book thing so mm-hmm. i wanted to i wanted to mention that just to not be Recognize that. That right. is the thing yeah. happened. Wow. So, and so this is where you... I think I've heard of that before. Yeah. I mean, to bring it all the way down there, I'm sorry about that, but I feel like I had to mention that. No, yeah. That's a... That, you know, we always mention the yeah. way that they tie in the historical fiction. So I wonder... Um, what was the purpose of using that name? Yeah. You know, there, so, there was some sort of... I would figure there would be some sort of reasoning behind mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. Interesting. Let us know what you think about that. Nathaniel Green said, Durga, give strength to my arm. Fill my hands with weapons. This line does something every time I say it. Just like the feeling I get when I say the gunslinger mantra from Dark Tower. I did not kill with my hand. He who kills with his hand has forgotten the face of his father. I kill with my heart. Ah, very nice. Yeah. That's really good. I love that one. But uh, I also say the uh, the litany against fear from Dune to myself yeah, sometimes. Yeah. From Dune, I was just going to say that. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. I love saying that to myself. It's a great one. It's like like the only reason to read the book, really. (laughs) Come away with that. Yeah, I say that to myself like right before I had LASIK surgery, or I'm going to fly on a plane, right, right, or you know, anytime I feel I love that nervous or scared. We had some feedback on our Lobster Johnson short stories part one episode. Benjamin Decker said, "It's amazing how much we care about Lobster Johnson, considering how little we actually know about him. Every other hero has a worn-out origin. While we don't know the lobster's name, identity, backstory, or motivation for fighting crime." Besides wanting to kill Nazis. <laughs> so many Mignolverse characters like Lobster Johnson, Ted Howards, Ashley Strode, etc. have very little backstory and instead are thrown right into the action. Like Matt's idea of jumping into the third act of the story in a Lobster Johnson one-shot. Yeah, I thought that was a great point. We don't really know a whole lot about him, but yeah, we just, he's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that that adds to his appeal a little bit because, you know, he doesn't have that same tired old, you know, I'm an orphan, now i got to get revenge (laughs) storyline. Right. And that applies to way too many superheroes. (laughs) That's a lot. It's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Hayden Orr said, great episode. Regarding Tony Masso's Finest Hour, it's really interesting to see this specific Ogdruhem and its cult members pop up again and again. Not to spoil anything, we might see it again in another story. Also, the melting scientist from Kaput Mortem always makes me think of the melting punk from Robocop. So gnarly. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's a oh. hardcore scene. Do you it remember really, that at all? Oh, I oh, used that's to mean, constantly, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was Gruesome. Say, I used to, like, imitate that when he's all oh, melting. Yeah. Oh. That might be offensive. Yeah, anyway. I used to watch that movie a lot. It's offensive, it's offensive to yeah. melting people. Jump. 
to melting scumbag criminals. <laughs> Lobster20,000 said, These stories are all terrific. Kaput Mortem especially is so much fun. And Jason Abaddon said, One of the things I love about Lobster Johnson stories is how they are adventures published out of chronological order. It reminds me how Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is actually before Raiders of the Lost Ark. They both have that pulpy adventure kind of feel. Listening to the podcast and laughed so hard at Danielle's feel the claws joke. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody got it, right? Somebody has taste. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I love the lobster, but sometimes he seems totally unhinged, like beating ass with a luggage rack. <laughs> he seems kind of nuts, then more grounded and methodical when he has his crew, and later when his crew is dead or dispersed. He slides back into crazy when he gets killed at the castle. Yeah, that's a good... Yeah, so when he's got the crew, yeah. they kind of ground him a little bit. When he's on his right. own is when he just kind of loses it. It's great, though. All right. And now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. This week, we're talking about Get the Lobster. Get the Lobster. And it's got the exclamation point. Yeah. That's actually part of the title. Yeah, that's great. This is a five-issue miniseries published from February to June 2014, written by Mignola and Arcudi, cover and interior arts by Tanchi Zonich. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. I love this cover. It's like a nice preview of what's to come. Oh, right. The trade paperback cover is really great. It was done in watercolor. You can kind of see that. Yeah. We open it in October of 1934. This follows the stories that we read as part of the Satan Smells a Rat in our Lobster Johnson short stories part one and two episodes. And we see there's a lot of things in this opening scene, right? So we open on this Nazi Zeppelin. We saw airships in the story a few episodes ago, Kaput Mortem. Also, the Hindenburg disaster was a Nazi airship that was just like this. And that flew in 1936 and shortly thereafter exploded into fire. We see some gangsters exiting Madison Square Garden. There have been four Madison Square Gardens, and this is probably the third one. It was built in 1925 and closed in 1968 and was located on the west side of 8th Avenue in Manhattan on the side of the city's trolley car barns. It was the home of the New York Rangers and the New York Knicks, and it also hosted numerous boxing matches, concerts, and other events. And so on the billboard here at Madison Square Garden, we see some notable names. Joseph Raymond Tutsmont was an American professional wrestler and promoter who revolutionized the wrestling industry in the early to mid-1920s. Famously, in 1963, Mont and Vince McMahon Sr. broke away from the NWA National Wrestling Alliance, renaming Capital Wrestling Corporation to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. So they kind of started all that. Hmm. Robert Herman Julius Friedrich, better known by his ring name Ed Strangler Lewis, was an American professional wrestler. During his professional wrestling career, which spanned four decades, he was a four-time world heavyweight wrestling champion. Vern Henkler and George Swag. I think that those are fictional names. I couldn't really find anything in reference to that. And then we also see the Russian Bear and the Double Dwarf. Those are going to be two of the characters that are going to be featured prominently in the story. We also see these gangster types under the billboard. There's three of them, and they're all talking to each other. One says, I wish you would let me talk you out of it. And the other says... You won't talk us out of anything, see? Not unless you'd like to talk yourself out of that 50 thou you won't. Now let's see what you got. That's good. We also yeah, he's got his, his sleeve pinned up to his shoulder. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I didn't notice that. So this one in the middle, you know, we can see that he's probably had his arm amputated for some reason. 
We also see Harry McTell at the wrestling match. He calls Cindy Tynan on a payphone. And he's trying to get her to come out to the match. She says, it's all fake. Plus, she's got a piece due in the morning. Harry guesses it's about the Anne Lange Zeppelin. He mentions it can't even land in New York. And so this word Anlange means investment. Cindy says, it's not that. It's something bigger. And so we see she's working on a piece called Who is the Lobster? Part one in a five-part series. Back at Madison Square Garden, we saw a Russian Baron Double Dwarf on the marquee outside, and here the announcer introduces them. The Russian Bear being Kirill Lykian, the Soviet heavyweight champion. And from hell itself, the undefeated Double Dwarf. And we see this man wearing a devil mask. Don't let his size fool you, folks. This one's a demon in the ring, the announcer says. I love these designs of these wrestlers, yeah. right? Yeah, they're pretty cool. <laughs> and Tanchi Zanyich's art is so animated. Yeah. It, like, yeah. I could see this as an animated series yes, with, exactly. his, with his art. I really like it a lot. He really does a good job with this whole period, right? Yeah. Um, some well, people just call also, it Tozo. Oh, Tozo? Okay. Yeah, that's how he signs it is Tozo. And and also, like, just the way that the dynamics of it, the way that people are moving around, and, yeah, it just really lends itself to that. It feels animated, even though it's static. He Go has ahead. camera angles. He's, like, mm-hmm. coming from beneath the wrestlers, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, the camera would have to be in the floor of the ring sometimes. Right, right. I think that's unique perspective. The match starts off. I like how there's that ding-ding. Mm-hmm. We see the wrestlers kind of sizing each other up as the Russian bear kind of picks up the devil dwarf. We see the dwarf bite him, and he immediately starts bleeding, and so he turns to the ref, and he's like, hey, look, this man break rule. The ref is, like, looking at something else. He's like, you can't take pictures here, so he misses the whole thing, right? Right. So then... Uh, the Russian bear isn't too happy with that. He gets the referee and he starts like puts him in some sort of chokehold thing, and then he cracks his neck. That just, <laughs> oh my god! That was yeah. And then so everybody's stunned. Obviously, um, everybody in the crowd, and we see the police pulling out their guns. Now you want to laugh at Carol? The Russian bear says, and he lifts up the devil dwarf, and he kind of like tosses him. It's kind of like a fastball special yeah. X Men style, yeah. right? <laughs> And the devil dwarf, he kicks the cop in the face, and then he just starts shooting at everybody. This is so, it just escalated so crazy. I remember, like, when I first read this, like, it really pulls you in right from the beginning. Yeah. You see how on the one panel when he gets kicked on the, the cop gets kicked in the face, he drops his gun. And it's like you said, it's it's so animated. So you can see the the guy pick up the gun and just start firing. Even though that panel's not there, our mind still fills it in. Yeah, I love that. Like you said, like like he's got a way with timing. He's got a way with what to include in the panel and also how people move. Right. Yeah. It really looks like people are... Anyway, I mean, I'm just describing someone who is good at their job, I guess, (laughs) but it's great. It is. You're great. It's so much fun to read. Just like we've seen the lobster do in other comics, Harry is counting the gunshots from the double dwarf. And he waits until he's empty, and he comes behind him. But just when he comes behind, the Russian bear knocks him out on the back of the head. Right when he's like sitting there, he goes, okay, just uh, one more shot, blah, blah, blah. I was like, wait. I went back and reread all the blams just okay. to be like, oh, yeah, there are five. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is a revolver. Yeah. I guess it's only six. Yeah. 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 And I'll, so, I'll buy that. Yeah, I like that. I like that little detail. 
I wonder if his uh, billy club is considered illegal contraband. Ooh. Can he just carry those around back then? Oh, I don't oh know. right. He pulls it out of his waist jacket. I was wondering if he got it from the cop. I mean, he pulls it out of his pants. Yeah, I was wondering if he got it from the cop, but... No, yeah, I guess he was just mm. holding on to it. I guess when you're the lobster's crew, you carry one of those. Sure. Yeah. Be right. able to defend yourself. Or maybe he's carrying that because it's not a deadly weapon. Or could yeah. it be considered right, a deadly right. weapon? I don't, I don't know. know. After they knock Harry out, we see those gangsters, those three that we saw under the marquee sign earlier. Well, is this what you wanted? Are you happy? One of them says. This is what they were talking about earlier when one of them was like, "Do you are you sure you want to go through with this? And then so he's like, very... Harry blacks out. We cut to a newspaper that says pandemonium at the garden. And we see a picture of the devil dwarf shooting his gun. And pandemonium also made me think of Hellboy in Hell. Right? That's one oh, of right. those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's tied into that. And we see Mr. Wald and Mr. Isog. These were the two that the lobster went up against in Lobster Johnson, The Burning Hand. Remember, at the end of that story, the lobster and his crew killed Camilla, and they sent Raimond Diestel, that version of the Black Flame, to jail. But Wald and Mr. Isog got away. And Isog made it seem to Mr. Wald that he got rid of Kamala and the Black Flame, and that completed that power play. Remember, he couldn't smoke around him, and then at the end, he's like, right. we'll just get an ashtray or whatever. We catch up with them again. I thought it was cool to see them back in the story Isog points Wald's attention to the story in the paper, other than the pandemonium at the garden. Wald looks at the headline, Who is the Lobster by Cindy Tynan. So you want me to read all this? Or maybe you can just tell me what's <laughs> what, he says to Isog. <laughs> Isog tells him that it's an expose on their old friend. Tynan is not entirely flattering to him, and Isog wonders if she's gone sour on him. Wald remembers her and asks if they should send her a couple visitors, but Isog says he doesn't want to handle it that way. Whatever you say, Wald says. So now he's taking orders from Mr. Isog, right? He's allowing him to be his advisor now. Right. We cut over to Bill and Harry. They're in the boat going to the lobster's hideout. Harry had to take a week off after getting a concussion at the wrestling match, and Bill is kind of giving him some shit about it. <laughs> well, feel free to get your own noggin creased by that goon sometimes, Harry says. Bill wishes they had got to him first, but Harry says, I'll bet St. Luke's has these sewers beat by a mile on the concussion care. He's kind of doing what some people do because they can't deal with saying, I was really worried about you and I'm glad that you're sure, okay. Yeah. But they can't say that. They got to be like, ah, it's just a scratch. Sure, yeah. Like if, you know, if someone got hit by a bus, the first thing they'd say would be like, ah, you know... The city's down one bus. You're a tough. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. are you doing in the hospital? It's AKA. I'm always oh, so worried about you, dude. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, and Harry also says, and the nurses are prettier. Right, right, and right. And then Bill's like, well, now you're just being mean. So I guess that kind of plays to <laughs> yeah. that same thing that you're it's talking trying, about. They're trying yeah. to diffuse the whole, wow, you almost died. It's cool that you didn't. Right. But instead, they're just like, oh, what are you saying? I'm not pretty? Oh, it's <laughs> very cute. And so we get this awesome full splash page by Zonich of the hideout. I really love this. Yeah, the hideout's pretty cool. So I think this is Lester over here. He's like pulling some hatch. I guess that's what lets the little gate down so that they can come in on the boat. We also see Bob coming up. And so we've met Bob before. Robert Isherwood in other lobster stories. He actually prefers Robert. 
but we know that they're going to call him Bob, right? We always yeah. see the, and him being referred to as that, so I love that. He should have said, I love being called Bob, and then maybe they would have called him Robert instead. No, I think they would just call him Bob no matter what. <laughs> Harry says that now he's got his pipe and shag, everything's okay. He asks where the lobster is. Oh, the boss, Bob says. He's upstairs trying to keep tabs on the news. And so we see the lobster listening to the radio. Police Chief Higgins reports that the killers have been running around for five nights. So the mayor has approved expanding the police presence. This will bring about results. I promise you that, Higgins reports. I love the way he listens to the radio. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> got his foot up on that chair. Yes. And he's like, he's got to be intently listening to it, right? <laughs> Simply put, we'll bring an end to the reign of terror in short order. We cut to two cops in a squad car. And he's like, I like this wee business, he says to the other. What the hell is he doing? And suddenly... Enjoying a fine cigarette. Right, yeah. <laughs> I like how Zanya draws these guys. He talks about... Um, oh, right, so I forgot to mention that. So Mark Tweedo has an excellent addendum to this story. It's an interview with him talking to Zanya about this series specifically. Oh, wow. And he talks about designing all the different faces and stuff like that and how... Like when he was drawing a face, if his pen moved a little bit, then all of a sudden this guy's got a lumpy face now, you okay. know, and it would kind of like, <laughs> you know, it kind of gave all the different ones like different characterizations. And anyway, I really enjoyed reading all that. Yeah, I, I liked reading that, too. I was just skimming that page to make sure there weren't spoilers for other stories. I mean, he does talk about other stories, but it's mainly this. Right, right. And again, you can see this is another artist who knows how to draw motion. He didn't oh, yeah. just put yeah. a bunch of lines in there. He literally, like, created motion in the line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And and it comes back to dynamic angle and perspective. I feel like the camera's looking up again. It's very considered. He's not just like, okay, car, driving forward. Here we go. Right, right. He's having a good time doing his job. I think that's worth noting. Yeah, and what you're referring to here is the car zooming past the two cops that were talking. We see that it's another squad car. The Russian bear is driving, and the devil dwarf is there, and he's, like, stepping out of the passenger seat onto the front of the car. So there's no windshield in these old cars, and you can just step out like that. No, you can see the uh, windshield is broken. It's like they smashed through the windshield, and so he's just popping out of it. Oh, you're right. There is, like, some fragments on the side. Okay, so that's awesome. Why would car? cars not have windshields? I was wondering how he's able to step out. I didn't notice the little okay, well, fragments. Old-timey there. cars don't well, have windshields. Old -timey, some old-timey cars didn't have windshields. Right. Oh, did they not? Uh, but by this point, they did. Okay. okay. I love that he's wearing the police, the policeman's hat. Oh, the double dwarf. stole the car is, yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I hate to bring it all the way back to technical prowess, but Dave Stewart, the oh, way he yeah. paints this oh, yeah. is just yeah. like, yeah. we all know that he's amazing, but just like, take a look at this would something like this. I wouldn't even know how to approach it. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. With just all those lines and how to well, color that. Not just that. Well, that. Yeah, absolutely. That too. The colors, I, I know, though, the I know color what you mean. Yeah. choices and placement mm -hmm. is so, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I feel like it's tinted orange. This isn't what he's doing, but it's like you're looking through the lobster's goggles. Oh, you know, that's, I love that. 
but I don't know if that's why he does. It. I don't think it is. I think it's more like well, it just gives um, it so much um, personality. It gives it, and like the even the car is has these tone, these warm tones, like these red tones. And I think it's almost like we've talked about this before, like the soundtrack. Yeah, and so, yeah, so there's this, there's an yes. there's an action beat here. The cops they call in that they see these two, and then they get all shot you know by the double dwarf and over all these panels it's all this like orangey yeah um yellowish background which i think kind of like lends that there's a heightened yeah. you know during there's a heightened emotion during this action beat yeah as their car drives up we hear the lobster all right bill the streets are clear and an explosion blast from the sewer just as the car passes over so they had like they had that ready right the crew direct hit bill the lobster says take the boat out of the river and wait for my signal the lobster approaches the overturned car and the devil dwarf emerges you can't escape killer and the lobster shoots at him Justice is everywhere. <laughs> and so he chases after him, and the devil dwarf runs around the car, and then there's this crunch. The Russian bear bursts out of the overturned car. Justice, bug-eye man, here is justice for you. And the Russian bear tries to grab the lobster, but he kicks him in the face and he shoots him. But the Russian bear, he just keeps coming, and he punches the wall, and we reveal, like, under his glove, he has, like, a metal hand yeah so he's got like bionic parts and stuff but just like danielle was saying this i think i said this last time but it kind of reminds me of batman the animated series yeah you know what i yeah. mean i can almost oh, hear yeah. like the voice sure. acting and everything but especially the design on the russian bear as he's like the action as he's swinging at the lobster and everything i love this panel where the lobster kicks him in the face too oh that's such a great kick yeah <laughs> that, because this is the lobster going up against a formidable uh, right, wrestler, right right and a pro wrestler at that at this point in the fight the cops have shown up too and they're watching the lobster fight the wrestler and so the lobster is shooting but he runs out of bullets and the russian bear he like crushes the car trying to get to him he faces the lobster no more hopping for bug eye time is to run run away or die the wrestler yells and the lobster just stands there and like reloads his pistol it's so awesome Jeez. that moment where he's yeah. just like i'm just gonna stay here and stand off with this guy why do you not run the wrestler yells and the lobster just empties his gun into him that's a, such a great panel with all the like blam 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 and everything yeah it's at point blank range and so the russian bear falls down dead and now justice we see the lobster's burning hand about to burn him <laughs> but in the background we can see those three gangsters that we saw in the beginning of the story and they've been observing all this from a nearby rooftop i told you it was too soon and now we'll be found out one says you're mistaken this is good another says just do as i say with the lobster about to burn the wrestler the cops close in and so i love this like the lobster is kind of a maniac because he's like, yeah. he's like, okay, I'm still, yeah. I still have to do this ritualistic kind of OCD thing. There's all these cops around him with their guns, and he's like, no, I'm still gonna do this. I'm still gonna <laughs> this guy's still gonna feel the claw. Yeah, it's like a, he's like a little kid in that first panel. Like, okay, I just gotta burn him real quick, and then <laughs> please let me burn. I'm just gonna burn him. Yeah, just, just let me put a claw on his forehead, and then, and then so I'm out. he's. He's such a cipher. He's like locked in. He's he's the most right. single-minded character in that entire Hellboy universe. Right. Stop right there, the cops say. Suddenly, the Russian bear awakes. Bug-Eye, he says, grabbing the lobster's grenades. 
with his last bit of strength. The cops take cover, there's this huge explosion, and afterwards, just the remains of the Russian bear and the car remain. We cut over to the lobster's hideout, and we see they've got the devil dwarf. His crew caught him. We didn't see what happened to him after the Russian bear jumped out of the car. They talk about that he jumped in the river, and they had to fish him out. And so they have him with these animal control poles or whatever, those long, like you're going to catch a dog or something. And And he's in a straitjacket, too. Oh, you're right. The lobster approaches. So he got away somehow from that explosion. Hey, boss, you're just in time. We were about to throw him back, Lester says. Hold him good. I want to know what we're dealing with, the lobster says. And so he pulls off the mask and the little guy, he's like foaming at the mouth, all crazed. And he's got, like, stitches all over his head. Yeah, or, like, staples. That's what I was going to say, staples. Yeah, Yeah, what a gruesome reveal. And so he just seems, like, totally animalistic in that moment. In the single issue for this, there's a Pools Elixir advertisement in the letter column. Oh, Oh. to tease Mysteries of Unlined, which hadn't come out yet. Doesn't say anything about Witchfinders. just this random That is so awesome. I love that. And what a way to end the issue, too, because it's like the next page. It's like, oh, man, now we're on the cover. <laughs> now we're on part two. <laughs> I can just want to imagine reading the single issue, like, and then like reading, like, oh, damn it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a great reveal. I love this series. Chapter two, we open on a press conference with Chief Higgins, and he's shaming the media for making the lobster into a hero. His men were put in danger when a loose grenade exploded among them, a grenade from the lobster's personal arsenal. This isn't trench warfare, he says. This is the greatest city in the world, and I won't have one maniac blowing it to pieces. And so one of the reporters is like, Chief Higgins, doesn't the DOI assume control of the lobster case? Because remember, they came and took all the files from Eckert, and Higgins says that they've been notified, but since he's a direct danger to New York City police officers, that puts him in their jurisdiction. The reporter asks about the Gartberg Zeppelin, and if that put more pressure on the police. The Garber leaves for Chicago tomorrow, the chief says, and unless the lobster leaves with it, he'll still be a wanted man. Don't look for any excuses for what I'm saying here, Chief Higgins says. The lobster's reign of terror is over, plain and simple. Back at the lobster's hideout, they have the little guy tied up to a chair, and he's still, like, screaming out and everything. And he's, like, struggling, too. And it seems like this has been going on for a long time because one of the guys is like, give it a rest already. Bob comes over with a syringe. He's like, I'll handle him. They're looking at x-rays also. Harry's there. And we see that he's got, like, all these electronics in his head. Harry says, take it easy on the little guy. You'd be pretty ornery, too, if you had a ham radio inside your skull. And Lester's like, that is what it looks like. A radio-controlled man, is that really what we have here? Lester asks. If you give me another reason why two working stiffs on the wrestling circuit would suddenly go ape and start killing everybody they see, I'm listening. And so they're like, controlled by who? The bigger question right now is, what do we do with him, Bob says. He's no criminal, not by choice, so icing him doesn't seem right. On the other hand, what kind of life does he have left this way? That ain't a question for us. You'll have to ask the boss. And I got no idea where he is. We cut to Cindy Tynan. She's heading back to the office to work on her story with a stack of books. In her office, we see her researching Staten Island Slaughter from the book History of the New York Underworld. And so there is actually a book called that, but it wasn't published until like the 60s. 
So it wouldn't have been around mm. at this time. Going back to radio controlled guy just a second ago. Uh where they're talking about how he's not really a criminal, so Right. The the same could be said for the um the big wrestler. The big Oh guy. yeah, yeah. So he wasn't really a criminal because he's being controlled, but I mean I guess the lobster didn't know that, but he was still gonna burning and all that is like did he really deserve it if he's being oh controlled? yeah you're right you're right and so he didn't get to burn him that's true though oh yeah mm. i like that good point aubrey and well, I he do... really wanted to though yeah he really did <laughs> <laughs> but i do like that they bring up this point about what kind of life does he even have now that they've done all these experiments on him in cindy's office she hears miss tynan the lobster suddenly appears in the window. That's a very Batman yeah. kind of yeah. entrance, right? What the hell's the matter with you? She exclaims. Stop your series, the lobster says. He tells Cindy that she made a name for herself and also helped him, but the new series goes too far. It might lead her and the readers to wrong conclusions, he says. You're pursuing nothing but dead ends. Dead ends, she asks. We have a difficult enough struggle now with Chief Higgins. If you turn the public against me... Just stop writing the series, the lobster says. And then there's this long pause, right? And yeah. so um, I really love this panel as they face off. In that excellent article with Mark Tweedell talking to Zonyich, they talk about how this mirrors the scene in The Burning Hand where they're interrogating her. Oh, Remember? Okay. And so he's yeah. sitting on the other side of the thing and there's the spotlight in the middle. And we actually talked about that page for a long time when we did that. But this is kind of like... Um, it evokes that same parallel. And there was also a panel where it was just silent as they looked at each other like that. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I also like the, the beat of this. It's like she looks at him and she kind of, she notices the gun too. And, right. And then she says, then she says that and then he jumps out the window and it's just like, you know, I mean, she, I mean, he, is, is he threatening her? Right. Exactly. <laughs> She's like, and if I don't. And he just like looks at her. And so one thing that... Well, it's like we always like to talk about. It's good storytelling. Yeah, can, it's great. You can tell what's going on even if you can't read the word bubbles, which is super good. And an introduction to reading. Let oh, your yeah. kids read comic books. It's good for them. Do it. Yeah. 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 And it's it's kind of open to interpretation. Like I yeah. read that she said, she looks at the gun and says, and if I don't, are you going to shoot me? And he's like, nah, I don't want to answer that. Right. Because no. <laughs> I'm right. Not. Yeah. Well, yeah. But exactly. then I'm showing my cards. So... He's a hero. She's not a criminal. He's trying to intimidate her, but he's also kind of giving her access. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like for a reporter to be in the same room as the guy she's writing about, she'd be like, this is this is awesome. But nothing really <laughs> comes of it. Right. But it's a sign that, you know, hey, I'm going to be here every now and then. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, and I do really like this panel where she says, and if I don't, and then this next one with the lobster, we just see the two goggles. I forgot if it was Zonya or Mark Tweedell in that article. They talked about in this panel, like there's no humanity there. You can't see mm. his face. It's just black. And so that's kind of like um, adding to that ambiguity, I guess, that you were talking about. Oh, and so when he jumps out of the window, there's that spotlight behind him. You were talking about that Dark Knight image a little bit last week. Yeah. So that's what kind of that reminded me of also. Yeah, I was thinking that too. And then back with Cindy, I love when she's like, holy, and she like falls back in her seat. What the heck was that? Zonich does such a great job um, expressing that emotion from her. And so as the lobster runs off, we also see this guy. He saw the lobster running away, and so he's calling the police. 
So is this just some random guy who just happened to be looking at the top of buildings? Well, because Chief Higgins was just on the radio going, the lobster's yeah. a criminal, we need to get him, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So so I, it is just a random guy. Yeah, I think the public are like, oh, you know, they're keeping an eye out for him, where normally they might have just, like, not done anything about that. I know I've said this so many times, but I like that her clothes are regular clothes Oh, shaped. yeah. It's like, thanks for putting... Oh yeah. Clothing and... No, I um. There's a really interesting. I think it's in the sketchbook also where Zonyas talks about when he knew that this story was coming up and he had to do five issues. Like he took some time and just drew people in that period's clothes. Yeah. He did like studies mm. of just how those people look and the stuff that they would wear and how it hangs and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's and that's so it lends this authenticity. Set and setting. Yeah. We cut back to Mr. Wald's house. He's reading part two of Cindy's series about Mince Parker and the East River Drive. He seems almost disappointed that he hasn't been mentioned in either part. It also seems like <laughs> he's still in hiding from the DA. You sure were right, though, Wald says to Isog. This dame's got the inside track. Remember all that mess a while back with the Germans? Apparently Crab Boy was back of all that. Yes, sir, I read it this morning, Isog says. Okay, so you're ahead of me. What's new, Wald says. Way I see it, that still puts you a few steps behind the Tynendal, don't it? For the moment, Isog says. And we see he's reading a book by Edward Gibbon. This is probably The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is a six-volume work by the English historian Edward Gibbon. It traces Western civilization as well as Islamic and Mongolian conquests from the height of the Roman Empire to the fall of Byzantium. We cut over to the hospital. This is probably St. Luke's, which was referenced earlier, and we, they've got the double dwarf guy. He's not much bigger than a baby, one of the nurses says. The doc says he's called a doctor from the Northeastern Wrestling Alliance to help them ID the guy. They can't definitely say he's the same guy that's been shooting up the city. Well, I'd say he at least makes the short list, right? Hansen says. No, I wonder if this is all super mean and unnecessary oh yeah no when, when, when like, he why? says yeah why? yeah he's like this uh, poor person has had their brain cut open exactly. and put a bunch of stuff in there like are you kidding me this is so that's so rude yeah <laughs> yeah when he makes the uh, hansen makes this comment and so i think that's one of the things is he always has to make a little comment yeah, like that i think we've, is, we've yeah. seen that this in some of the other stories read a room but eckert's like I can't believe it took you this long to get there. Eckert gets called outside for a phone call asking for him. And Henson talks with the doctor about playing some cards or something like that. And while they wait on the other doctor. But this one soon arrives. Dr. Boyer Emerson. Dr. Boyer Emerson or William Fickner. Oh, is that who that is? <laughs> oh, yeah. What, who's William Fickner? I just like him and I want any excuse to put him in a thing. Is that... um? That's the category of is he character in the actor. That I, he's the... In the uh, mob boss in the bank. Yeah, okay. Oh, I love that guy. guy. I love that yeah, guy. Love I love him. That guy. Yeah. yeah. He does a lot of stuff. He's in a lot of stuff. If you've got another idea. Good job there. If you got an idea, give us a hate him, guys. You know, when I was doing the post for the other week where we had Kevin Nolan doing Satan Smells a Rat, mm -hmm. like when Kevin Nolan draws the lobster's bottom part of his face, it yeah. reminds me of Thomas Hayden Church, who played the lobster in the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It kind oh, yeah. of, he has that same Good. kind of face. And so I was like, oh, I can, I can see that casting there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just, to, I mean, obviously, th that actor is not as old as the character's been drawn here, but we, you know, you don't want to cast Aunt May as like, she looks like the Crypt Keeper puppet. Oh, yeah. So it's like, you know, we've got Marissa Torme, which is 
Yeah. Is it, how do you say her name? Marissa Tomei. To, is it Tomei or Tormei? It's Tomei. I'm Tomei. thinking of a yeah. different guy. Mel Tormei. Mel Tormei. Mel Tormei. I squished him up. <laughs> the Velvet Fog. The Velvet Fog, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Marissa Tomei is Anne May. I think it's good casting. You oh, know? that was good. great casting. So I'm not really trying to that. say that this actor is looks like this guy. I just think, I just want an excuse to like put him in a thing. No, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, I mean, well, not to spoil it, but there's going to be a twist later, I think, that he would be perfect for, right? Okay, yeah. Back with the lobster, he coordinates with Bill in his earpiece on the escape plan, but the police floodlights target him. Stop where you are, lobster. And the lobster starts shooting down at the cops, shattering the spotlight. So he doesn't actually go for the cops either. He just kind of like shoots the way that, so that way he can get away. Yeah. They're shooting at the lights. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> what is that a reference to? Die hard. Die hard. Oh, okay. And then you missed that for all of our <laughs> oh, listeners. No. But uh, uh, Danielle tried to fist bump Aubrey and Aubrey tried to high five Danielle. So oh, they just kind of did awesome. like a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers type of thing or whatever. <laughs> it's Morphin time. Oh, man. Well, the great thing is we did it twice. I know. And we switched, <laughs> we switched, oh, and we switched I, both yeah. ways. I missed the. I missed uh. that. So the lobster shoots at the spotlight and runs off. Bill is calling at him. What's going on? I'm cut off from the river, the lobster says. Proceed to the secondary rendezvous. Who are you talking to, guardian angel, a voice says. Not doing much of a job, is he? And the lobster is all surrounded by cops in the stairwell. This scene is very reminiscent to me of um, Batman Year One. Batman Year Two, and uh, okay, parts of Mask of the Phantasm. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. it's where, got a lot of those Batman qualities. Yeah. yeah, where those times when the cops are like actually after him, and um, right, right, he has to fight the cops. Yeah, and this one cop, he tries to be logical with him. He's like, no matter what Higgins says, he knows the lobster doesn't want civilians hurt. So he's like, look, there's a lot of civilians here. And this old woman comes out and she's like, for the love of Mike, what's all the noise? Is that a, is that a thing? Is that a saying? For the love of Mike is a minced oath, a substitute for the love of God that refers to Mike, meaning an Irishman, a.k.a., and this is, this is an offensive term, a mick. Yeah. Uh, and there are also variations, Holy Mike and Mother of Mike. And, but some people have also said that it's St. Michael because oh. he's like a protector spirit. Okay. And then there's also for the love of Pete and yeah. Pete's sake is okay. kind of the same thing yeah. as this. Okay. And then people have said Pete's sake or for the love of Pete is Saint Peter. So you could you could, it could be either you, you one could of read these. it in that yeah. kind of offensive way, or you could read it in this other way, which people have interpreted it. And I found this from PhraseFinder.com. There's also a movie called For the Love of Mike. Okay. Uh, it's an old tw- 1927 movie. All right. I was just say, I like how they spell lover here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I've actually heard people say for Pete's sake before, and I've never actually thought of it as a name. I've always thought it was something like, you know, the way you say shoot instead of shit. Right, you know? right. Oh, okay. I right. never I never thought it, it never, until well, it's the you same s- concept, I think, yeah. Well, no, it's just until you said Peter, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> So when this old lady comes out and she says, for the love of Mike, the cop's like, get inside now. But that provides enough distraction for the lobster to leap out the window, dodging all their bullets. Oh, dear. Oh, my word. The old woman exclaims. (laughs) I love her expression. (laughs) The lobster's gone. Back at the Herald Tribune, 
Cindy Tynan continues writing her series on the lobster. She's not too worried that he will hurt her. She's more spooked by all that hooey with Chief Higgins. In her research, she's reading a book about pirates, specifically one Cayetano de Povedia Odoro Antomarchi, who made a name for himself as El Bogavante, or the lobster. (laughs) This pirate was especially brutal. He even killed those who surrendered, saying the earth can do well with fewer cowards. He was called the lobster due to a birthmark or tattoo that he had on the back of his right hand. And it also says here that the ship was eventually overtaken by the USS Narwhal in 1810. Now, there was an actual USS Narwhal. This was the lead ship of the D-class submarines of the United States Navy, but it wasn't launched until 1909. So maybe in the Mignolaverse, the Narwhal occurred 20 years earlier or something like that. How unexpected. All of a sudden, we're in this pirate story. I know. It's like, what is this? What is this connection? It's real pulpy, though. Oh, you know, yeah. Pirates, that was a yeah. big deal with the pulp. So I almost feel like Arcudi or, or whoever was like, I'm still looking for a way to drop pirates into this. Nice. Oh, yeah. You know? it's like and a, then he's like, oh, let's do it here. It's like a pulp within a pulp, right? Yeah, exactly. We're looking back yeah. on this pulp to us, but to them, this would have been their pulp, I guess. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. I also got a feel of uh, Tales of the Black Freighter here. Oh, yeah, you're right. You yeah. know, when, uh, when it went from the lobster being chased to all of a sudden pirate story. Yeah, that's great. By all accounts... El Bogavante fought ferociously for hours, and we see him getting bloodied while he's fighting these guys. Muddying the issue further, there were also accounts that he had been seen in a brothel later the same day that he was supposedly killed. When the woman he was with, Olivia Dasher, awoke, she was next to a headless body. Whoa. I mean, does it look like he's getting beheaded here or something? (laughs) Yeah, it does kind of look like that. Yeah, that's the thing. His, His ghost went to the brothel. Or his body with the ghost head. Mm. It's all like covered in seaweed or something. Yeah, that's what I'm oh. saying. It's, oh, you're right. It's creepy magic. It's creepy ghost magic. And so Olivia Dasher later gave birth to twins, one of them being Abadas Dasher, who was an American scout, trapper, regulator, and bounty hunter. In the Civil War, Dasher led a band of irregulars against Union and Confederate forces. Appomattox is referenced. This is referring to the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, this being one of the last events of the Civil War. Though President Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, slaves in the southern states were not freed until the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th. Well, and that's in uh, 1865. So then, oh, so two years, over two and a half years later. Yeah. It says, after Appomattox, he returned to his wife and family in the Dakota Territory. So this is like 1865, and he was born in when? 1810? She had these nine kids. Nine months later. Nine months yeah. later. Those are his kids, the ghost oh, kids. Oh, you're right. You're right. Okay. They're mystical ghost kids, and she had these kids, and that's so that's like 50? Oh, you're right. I didn't even think about that. So he returns to his family. Now he's 55 years old doing all this action stuff. Yeah. He's in good shape. Yeah, no, we see that. Yeah, so that lends. Yeah, thank you for picking up on that little detail. So he might be kind of a little bit of a mystical character, right? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, well, don't uh, we see the ghost of Lobster Johnson later? Is my point. Yeah, right, right. He looks young for being. I guess he's fighting in a war and doing all this intense stuff. Right, right. And he's also like you. Could, he could have had a ton of kids before he went to go do that, and then a bunch after, and then it doesn't really matter. I'm just saying, like ghost DNA. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he reminds me of the real life person Hugh Glass. Okay. DiCaprio portrayed him in oh, the okay. Remnant. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, what they show in the movie is just a sliver of that guy's story. Right. There's okay. so much more okay. to him. Wow. And he actually was a pirate. Oh, he was He was kidnapped. I think he was a sailor kidnapped by pirates and was forced to be a pirate. Oh, wow. Okay. Escape, escaped somewhere in Texas or off the coast of Texas and, like, walked to Oklahoma. Jeez. <laughs> it was, and you could just imagine like what went down during that trip. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Wow. And then he was taken prisoner by Native Americans, taught them how to use red dye and okay. red face paint. Oh, they I think didn't we have about this. Yeah. Did we talk about it one time? No, I think. Were you on the show when we first talked I wasn't, about I'm Ted not up on this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, or, that's when we talked about know. it. That's when we talked oh, about okay. it. Oh, okay. But it is historically referenced. Okay. But I'm then not trying he to like, doubt what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. What, and left for dead and then found his way back to civilization. But that's looked at as like the most remarkable thing to happen to the guy. And it's really just the last sure. remarkable thing wow. to happen to the guy. Like he's got a pretty wild story. So this guy reminds me a lot of him. Do you think they're but referencing? Glass, do you think they're referencing him directly, or do you think it's maybe just one of those general Hugh, Davy Crockett, Paul Bunyan guys? Sure. Yeah, exactly. Because Glass died in 1833. Right. He's like kind of an amalgam. There's something more than just a frontiersman here. Yeah, you know? that's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. He's kind of yeah. a ghost DNA. Yeah. Oh yeah, and Dasher said they could transform into panthers at will. Oh, his kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So um, here's where I was like, man, they better not tell us the origin of Lobster Johnson. Oh, right. They did not want to know. And I wrote a letter about it, and I was all upset. And, oh, no. and looking, looking back on it now, this is just so absurd that there's no way. <laughs> super funny. You know, yeah, it's just like this really ridiculous story. And it's kind of like there's no way any of this is real. And if it is, it's not all real. And right. if it is... How could you prove it? So I think they were just like, oh, we'll tease an origin story. But we'll make it as outlandish as possible. Sure, yeah. <laughs> right? And I love this moment where Cindy realizes how outlandish it is, right? She's like, are you kidding me? She says Great. to herself, well, what a waste of an evening. Panther people. <laughs> but jaguars are panthers, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we right. know that jaguar. Pe- there's jaguar panther people. Yeah. Well, in I mean, the, the part, in this universe. Okay, so I actually did think that are they trying to let us know about some daimyo stuff here? Maybe that's <laughs> what it is, right? So um, I did want to talk about this a little bit. What are all these theories implying? So one of the things that, that caught my attention was they say he gave birth to twins, and this is a story of one of the twins, but they don't say anything about the other one. Huh? Oh, who's the other twin? Oh. He was nobody. He was car salesman. Or is that the lobster? <laughs> Is that what they're implying or something like that? Or oh, I don't yeah, know. is that the lobster? I was trying oh. to I was trying to take away like if they are teasing something and as a fan you're gonna try and dig into okay, why are they showing us all this? You know what I mean? Is it just like to be this absurdist thing or are they trying to actually 
tell us something, and if so, what is that? Because I, I well, they say one of the twins was raised in America. So was the other one not raised in America? Right. Mm. Okay. Well, because they weren't in America. The pirate guy. Where was he? Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. So how did the guy end up Saint in Croix. America? Like, there's some. Yeah. That's a major gap, right there. I mean, there's gaps all right, over this right. tale, but. So if he was raised in America, and then that's like he's a descendant of this guy. That would make sense, I guess. Right. Is that what they're trying to I, say? I he was one of the 32 kids, but he doesn't turn into a panther. That's does never he? been that's never been part of the lobster Maybe story. He does. Oh my god. <laughs> and what if it's, I mean Okay, so she got this pirate book to research this guy, but what if it's just an amazing coincidence that uh Oh yeah. This, this guy was called the lobster. And he sure, had lobster. sure. It's you're ridiculous. exactly right. Maybe it has nothing to do with it at all. Or maybe the original, I mean, the lobster read this book and he's like that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to oh, be the lobster. Okay. Maybe he was into pulp pirate stuff, and that's where he got it from. <laughs> sure. No, think about Ooh. Hellboy. Hellboy's, Hellboy's reading the lobster, the lobster stuff, stuff, and then he yeah. gets, oh, I like that too, Aubrey. That's super interesting. Yeah, because where did he get the name the lobster, oh, and why yeah. does he wear the claw, and why is it in his glove? Yeah. What is this? Like, it's by far the strongest just... theory. Well, they could explain that in a panel, right, if they wanted to. Like, they could just tell you really quickly why he's the lobster sure. and why is the why is the comic called lobster johnson but he's not he's not lobster mm. johnson right he's the lobster the lobster like I, yeah so none of it makes sense and with this whole pirate story and all that i could see them going back and saying um oh add in that one of them was raised in america because that'll throw people off sure <laughs> like they don't want it to make sense right but it is it is fun to think about Oh, Although yeah, I did yeah. try to stop them right away. I was like, don't do this. <laughs> it seems like it's kind of one of those things like you don't want them to explain it because if they did, it's just not going to be satisfying at this point. Right, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, that's what he's saying. And I guess my main disappointment with it, Matt, was that it didn't have a sea shanty in there. Because that would have been the perfect oh, time sure. to put one in. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> After all of this, we see Cindy exiting the Tribune and Eckert is out there waiting for her. He got a call that the lobster had was seen leaving there. And so that was that one guy that was like, hey, I see the lobster. That's how he talked. <laughs> hey, I see the lobster, see? <laughs> <laughs> Is that true, he asks. And a police car pulls up. Well, at least I'm saving money on cab fare, she says, as she's <laughs> escorted to the police car. So when he says, Is it true, Cindy? Like, it's also like a... You know, he's obviously like a police detective, but I've also felt like there is a little bit of a lover's scorn oh, in there, yeah. too, where he's like, is that mm-hmm. true? I actually didn't think about that, that but little you're, perf- angle, you're, yeah. you're right, because they do have a history together, too. So we cut to one of the gangsters. We saw this one earlier. He's the bald one. His name is Frank. And they were over there with the wrestlers and all of that. And he's seen walking to, next to the city model with all the miniatures and so we saw this right in satan smells a rat in that story the lobster came across some gruesome experiments to help the guy who was building the models walk again and so this guy frank he's walking towards a dark room and from within someone named marty is asking for the doc this thing itches he says and the cream they gave him for it smells like rotten fruit As we see Frank go in, he's walking into this lab, right? And so they've rebuilt this lab. We saw the lobster shoot it to pieces in that story, Satan Smells a Rat. Frank tells Marty that he should be happy since the doc fixed him up. And so we see Marty has this bionic metal arm. And I really love the design of that. So 
Zonich talked about he wanted it to have that feel from kind of like an old movie. And so mm. like so that way you could put a real arm in there if you needed to. You know what I mean? For the guy playing this guy. Oh, like if he has oh, two arms. Yeah. The bionic arm is designed in that way where it could be a practical costume. Like, I love uh, that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I actually like the design of it. I like how it I don't know, it just looks time period specific you know yeah and it's akin to hellboy too because it's kind of that asymmetrical yeah one hand is bigger than the other i really like that marty says he's been belly aching his whole life he can change it now he's happy and so we see he's got the metal arm and we see all the little lightning coming off the experiments is that lightning or smoke i thought it was like a tesla coil or something like yeah. that. yeah oh good point chapter three we open at the police station and the fuzz have got Sydney Tynan in the interrogation room. But she doesn't seem too phased. There's some great dialogue here between her and Eckert. She's like, gosh, I've been in custody almost an hour, and your guys haven't started beating me up yet. And he's like, sorry, Hanson's not here tonight. And the crappy repartee is his department. Yeah, was, that's, that's about accurate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that. And he also talks about how there was a report of the lobster leaving the Tribune. And she says that she gets outlandish reports every day that Valentino's still alive and King Kong was real. And I forgot to look that up. What is Valentino referencing? Rudolph Valentino? Who is that? Uh, actor. I think he was a heartthrob. Oh, okay, okay. Kind of like how people think that Elvis or Jim Morrison are still alive or something like that, or Kurt yeah. Cobain or whatever. Yeah, his name was Rodolfo Petro Filiberto Raffaello Goog Lelmi. <laughs> De Valentina de Antonella, known professionally as Rudolph Valentino. I I just destroyed those names, but <laughs> yeah, he's got like seven names. Damn. Um, he was an Italian actor based in the U.S. and he was a heartthrob. Nice. Thank you for that <laughs> bit of trivia there. I just love the way Zanya is drawing uh, Cindy Tynan right there, where she's just got her arms crossed, and she's not impressed. She's oh, like, yeah. And we had that great scene in a previous episode. I think you talked about that, too, where yeah. they're eating at the diner. And, oh, and yeah, her, and she's just like... Her body language yeah. in, that, in that silent panel is so expressive. She does she not have time for this guy's bullshit. <laughs> Eckert says that at one point he mentions how the police intercepted the lobster. And she's like, intercept him? And he's like, oh, now you're interested. Worried about your knight in black leather armor might have been hurt? Why would I bother with you if we'd already nailed the clown? And he's just like, what am I supposed to think? This isn't funny anymore. Anymore? When was it funny, Eckert? Back when you pretended to romance me, but you were really just using me for information? Was that funny? Give it up, detective. You don't hold any moral high ground here. And so then Higgins comes in. He's like, why don't I give it a shot? He starts trying to intimidate Cindy Tynan. As they're talking, she mentions how all this other stuff is going on, but he's just concerned with the lobster. And Higgins says that both wrestlers are accounted for while the vengeance-minded lunatic is still on the loose. And just out of curiosity, what's the crime rate in New York done since the lobster's been on the loose? Higgins says that when bootleggers were killing each other, did anyone ask the police to look the other way? Not after a bunch of kids got hit in the crossfire, no. And he's like, well, should I wait until this vigilante shots hit an innocent before taking any action? Justice, Miss Tynan, is not bullets flying through the New York night. It's not the bloody sidewalks and clever calling cards in dead men's pockets. 
makes for good newspaper stories, I understand, but it's not how justice works in the 20th century, and I've got a small secret for you, it's never worked that way, but you already knew that, right? And then so he's like, you can let her go, Eckert. And to answer your question about the crime rate, murders have skyrocketed ever since that vigilante started gunning down every man he deemed a bad guy. He makes a good point, though, even, you know, what knowing what we know later in the story. But I mean, yeah, I mean, he's a vigilante justice, you know, that is that what you would you really want that in real life? Yeah, no, there's <laughs> a there's a great quote. I don't want to cut ahead too far, but she Cindy Tyne. And when we see her again, she's like, that was a pretty lousy trick Higgins played on me, making a whole bunch of sense like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I do have a casting thing. I would cast the guy, this police guy. As police Mike, chief. Hag- police chief guy. Yeah. Michael Shannon. Very good. Yeah. He's that intimidating. He can do that. Mm-hmm. Especially for that scene he would have mm-hmm. been great for. Yeah. We cut back to the hospital. We see Dr. Emerson, a.k.a. William Fickner, right? <laughs> and or played by William Fickner. Right. <laughs> And his crew, they discover the devil dwarf is now missing from his room. Bed sheets tied together to make a rope dangle outside of the window. Who helped him escape? Harpo Marx, one of the masks. <laughs> and so we mentioned Groucho Marx on a previous episode. Harpo Marx was the second oldest of the Marx brothers. In contrast to the mainly verbal comedy of Groucho and Chico Marx, Harpo's comic style was visual being an example of both clown and pantomime traditions. You know what? One time those guys, they were doing live performances, and they had a sister, and she was coming to watch, and they decided to do each other's part. So uh, they switched roles, and it was seamless. She couldn't even tell. Oh, wow. So That's crazy. Groucho could be Harpo, right? and you would never know. Isn't that amazing? But they were all known for awesome. like individual things, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, the doc is pretty angry about this turn of events. He was informed that the little guy couldn't be roused. He tells Hansen that the devil dwarf's name is Lou Moskin, and he's very sick. And he accuses the police of not taking the situation seriously. And so he like storms out of the hospital. And as he's leaving the hospital, he hears a voice. Doctor, it's been a difficult night, but I think you can help me. It's the lobster. You know, one thing we never talk about is the lettering. Oh, I know. Yeah. It is. Well, first of all, it's what makes a comic book legible, if you ask me. Right. Because if you do it wrong, it's immediately illegible. Yeah. Yeah. But the way this doctor's talking to the cops, like the words that are bold or larger font or the way the bubbles overlap, you really, you can hear them talking to each other. Oh, yeah. And And then when you get outside and you get that doctor over his shoulder... And you know that's the lobster without having to look. Sure. And then the way those two word balloons are arranged when the doctor looks over his shoulder, you can hear it. It's an ominous tone. Right, right. I really love that. Yeah, it's what makes the Mignolaverse kind of part of that thread that all ties together is how, Mm -hmm. you know, even when we get flashbacks or... When we get um, certain characters speaking, they have different colored word bubbles like Hecate, I want to say, across the different books. Whoever's writing them, whoever's drawing them, there's always those uh, through line through the lettering, yeah. The little statue guy from uh, Tony Masso last week. Right, exactly. Or the week before. Hard to remember. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many lobsters lately. Also like the texture on the tie here. Oh, yeah. I really like that. Yeah, I think in the sketchbook, Zanyich says that this guy, he wanted him 
the clothes to not fit him right. Yeah. Like the coat is too big for him and right. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, but thanks for mentioning Clem Robbins, man. We don't we don't mention him. He's oh, a but, legend. Well, I mean, you mentioned him in the, at the beginning when you read the artist. Sure, but yeah. We, well, we right, we never do talk about the lettering. Well, and then when we get back to Cindy, she's got like a smaller font, so she's talking yeah. to herself. Oh, right? she's doing that little muttering. That's what I was mentioning yeah. earlier. Yeah, it's like, it, it's like you can also like we're far away from her too. You know. Oh yeah, it's morning now. Cindy's going into work, and she sees the janitor there. And he's like, oh, you're in early. And so she realizes really quickly that all her notes are gone. Where she was reading that pirate's book and all her notes that she was writing, she put them in this drawer and it's empty. I just want to point out this uh, top panel here. I like how the uh, the top of the uh, clock tower breaks the uh, panel. Oh, yeah, that's great. The janitor says, sorry, Miss Cindy, just can't figure out how your work gone missing. I can't either. Not how. But who? I think I've got that solved. And I love this like version of the lobster that she imagines coming in through the window. She yeah, can like yeah. see him coming in. You couldn't scare me, so you just decided to steal all my research. Yeah, well, who needs research? And then she's just like clackety clack 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 or whatever as she's furiously typing, and just a great expression on her face too. That also reminded me of when Abe is typing and it says clackety clack clack clack. Remember <laughs> right, when yeah. he was in the sweater phase? <laughs> And she never even took her gloves off or her coat. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. She's pissed. We cut over to Mr. Wald and Isog. Wald reads part three of Cindy's report on the Lobster series. This one says, Japanese espionage and the Chinatown murder is probably referencing the events of Ascent of Lotus. Isog shows up after apparently being out all night with a packet under his arm. He says it's a gift for Wald. Cindy's notes in the pirate book. I love Wald's expression where he's like, give me that. He's like all excited. Interesting how he took the time to wrap it too. I know. <laughs> That's why he was out all night. Like yeah. it only took him a little while to get to... To steal the notes. But, but then he had to run yeah. around and look for twine and paper. And everything. <laughs> butcher paper. <laughs> yeah, so he's the one that stole the, stole the notes from Cindy. Over with Frank, Marty, and the gangsters, they meet with Hollis. And using the city models, they explain how they're going to hit up 10 vaults in one night. And so all the targeted buildings are blowing up as he's like debriefing them in the model. That's a nice little touch. The cops, the lobster, hell, the whole FBI can't keep up with that. We cut to the lobster and his crew, and they already know the plan, right? Harry says... That would take a lot of explosives and manpower. The lobster got the info from Emerson from that previous scene where he confronted him at night. But the lobster doesn't trust him. But he seemed to want to talk, so I listened, he says. We cut to that flashback, and we see that Emerson is explaining that the guy he works for are Frank and Marty, with the guy with the bionic arm that we saw earlier. They're the Casaro brothers. They knew of Emerson's work with apes and neuromanipulation. So that already makes me think of right. something, right? Yeah. They wanted to use it on humans. The wrestlers were a trial run. The intent was to distract the police. And the Casaros are still controlling Moskin. Emerson started telling the lobster about bombing the vaults, but then the cops showed up. As they're having this flashback info dump, we see Bob is like patching up the lobster. All he's wearing is the cow part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to bring up how he doesn't, like, take off his mask right, in yeah. front of his crew. He never <laughs> takes that thing off. <laughs> so then what do we do, Bob asks. The lobster says, we get ready. We cut to Pinnacle Bank. 
there's a huge explosion. And again, this reminds me of like Batman the Animated Series yeah. again, right? Yeah. That very opening part. What are these guys? Well, and also what are they? They're running away with sacks with a dollar sign <laughs> yeah. on them. And as they run out, your time is up, Boss Hollis. We see the lobster there, and they start shooting at him. And I love this action as the lobster's just like running at them, just shooting. This makes me think, like, are we, are we reading Lobster Johnson comics? Like, right? Are we it, reading the pulp? Yeah. yeah. Or is this yeah. what happened? Like, I don't know. How he can just run at them and just it's be great. shooting? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this one guy is like, I'll tell you what you want to know, right? Like, he surrenders. He's the one guy still alive. The lobster starts asking him how many other banks, and he starts telling him. But then this one guy who was almost dead kind of gets up, and with his last shot, he shoots at the lobster. He jumps out of the way, shooting the guy that was giving him the information. And this is all paced really well. Before the lobster even lands from jumping out of the way, he's shot that guy, too. And so... After he comes to inspect the body, he sees that this guy also has those staples all over his head. Human puppets around the city? How many? He calls it into Lester to get to the bank that that guy was telling him about. At this point, all the cops and also the fire trucks are showing up. And while they're trying to figure out what's happening, there's a loud explosion. And so there's this huge splash page by Zanya. It's just amazing. It's kind of like a collage of all these things happening. I really love this. And it kind of lends to that style you were just saying, like, are we reading yeah. the Pulp Lobster Johnson comics? Like, this is what that would be like. And we hear the police report, all available units. We have multiple reports of explosions at the following locations. Witness accounts place the lobster at several addresses. And so I love we see the lobster leaving that scene and he's dropping those calling cards all over as he's <laughs> leaving. He's checking in with Lester. As they're talking, they see even more cops arriving. Lester tells the lobster to get out of there. And then he gets stopped by all this gunfire. Now the police are approaching him. They say they just want to keep him inside the bank. And so he's like, I'm boxed in. See if Bill can make a basement exit for me. And they're like, on it, boss. Outside, more police show up. And we see it's Higgins. We also see the police are getting suited up with these gas masks, kind of vests. And it reminded me of the ones that those Nazis were wearing in that Zeppelin oh, thing, yeah. right? They were wearing similar costumes. Higgins doesn't want to send any more men in. It's too dangerous. And so he like opens up the back of the car and he just starts pulling out all these grenades. The other cop is like, grenades? Sir, last week, didn't you say we don't fight crime with? Lieutenant, are you going to stand there giving me a history lesson? Or are you going to help me kill this son of a bitch? Michael Shannon yes. just starts throwing the grenades <laughs> into the yeah. opening of that building where the lobster is. The guy that I don't like, I hate that he's using grenades. And you're like, okay, fair point. We don't like grenades in the middle of a city, in a well-populated city. We don't want that. Boss, didn't you say you don't want people using grenades? He's like, don't give me a history lesson about a thing I said last week. Don't point out that I'm a hypocrite. And I just love all this, uh, all these scenes with the cops and everything. It just really lends to that kind of noir feel. You know, we haven't really had the lobster going up against the cops yet, which is a, a nice, you know, take on this story. Yeah. Chapter four, Lester calls to Bill, who we see underground. So he's trying to make that other exit for the lobster. He's planting all these bombs so the lobster can escape from below. He says it's not the first time they've had to come up with things on the fly. Outside with the cops, the grenades just keep exploding. 
One of the cops tells the chief, don't you think that's enough grenades? Probably, probably nothing left of the murderer, but the guts we can scrape off the walls. Still, just to be sure. And he gets like a Tommy gun or whatever, oh, like a machine right. gun. And they're like, chief, wait. And he's like, it's all over now. He just starts blasting the gun. Then there's this awful panel at the bottom where there's just like a blame and we see the chief get shot right through the neck. It's kind of one of those shock moments. Like yeah. it really yeah. breaks up that action, that scene. You don't really expect that to happen at this point. So then there's a loud explosion. The cops go to check out what happened. And they think that they think the lobster committed suicide or something like that. But what really happened is that they were able to break him out underground. We saw those bombs earlier setting that up. They come over to tell the lieutenant what they found. And they're like, you're not going to believe it. And he's like, hold on there, Rufus. Me first. And he removes Chief Higgins' hat. And we see that he had all those staples. Yeah. Were you all surprised by this or... I was. I mean, when you first meet the chief, he's he's talking some sense, and then all of a sudden, it's like, whips out grenades, and it's like, what the fuck is going on? Right. Yeah. yeah. Is he just fighting fire with fire? Yeah. Or has he is lost it? Is he just it? an obsessive, like, right, yeah. right. total, at any cost, and I'm the villain now, and this is, or is it like, oh, no, well, I guess that explains that he was being remote controlled to do stuff. It's it's a good, um, it's a good little twist. Yeah, and who shot him there? I guess it was lobster. He says later that he had no choice. Right, right. Because well, and then there's this scene immediately after we see that Bill is getting the lobster out through the sewers, and he says, "What happened up there, boss?" The lobster says, "Just get us out of here, Bill." Right, and so you can kind of sense a little bit of that. Right. Yeah. Now hold on. Uh, That's Bob, right? Yeah, I thought that was Bill. Because they show him like a couple times earlier. He's kind of like the well, stocky one. He refers one. to him as Bill. He calls him Bill. He says yeah. Bill. Oh, we just found another mistake. Okay. In mine, it's uh, Robert Ursherwood with the bow tie and the glasses. What? Wait, in the boat? Yeah. Oh. What are you looking at? What are you um, looking at? We're looking at the trade paperback. Yeah. We have Bill, the short, stocky guy. The one that was bringing in uh, Harry. Oh, cool. Okay, wait. So then who was it that was planting the bombs in that previous scene? Was it Bill? Okay, so that's where they messed up. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. You're going to have to do the side-by-side panel yeah, comparison. Yeah, yeah. I'll just bust out my issue. Well, that's three panels they drew him in there. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. We cut to the next day, and we see that Zeppelin overhead again. It's in the headline of the paper as well. And the lobster listens to the news report. They describe the events of the previous night, including the discovery that Chief Higgins was being controlled, just like Lou Moskin. A police spokesman commented that Higgins had been acting strange. We also see that McTell is reading Cindy's next piece, Part 4, Vigilante Justice or Violent Killer. Obviously, she's been influenced by what Higgins said, and that would have been before we knew that he had been controlled or whatever. You know what I mean? She right. probably wrote that before she knew any of that, I'm assuming. Well, and, and also the one that she wrote when like she found her notes missing and she was like pissed, pissed. off. Oh, that's right. She's yeah, all like, yeah. oh, you're going to steal my I'm notes, I'm just going to make this situation worse. <laughs> <laughs> Harry tells Lester that he can't believe she wrote this, but Lester says, she's just trying to sell newspapers and he read it she was careful with the words she used and doesn't say anything all that bad i like this we see bob run through 
I've got it, boss, boss, I found them. I, I just love that uh, that motion there. He's got info on the Casaros. Their dad was Benjamin Casaro. We already know him. So he was the old guy in the wheelchair from Satan Smells yeah. Around, right? He worked for a contracting firm that made dioramas. That's why he had all the miniatures and all that stuff. His name is still listed as owner of the factory warehouse. We cut over to that warehouse and we see Frank and Emerson and they're all friendly talking, right? They walk past a lab and they talk about how they plan to expand their operation. And we see those like Tesla coil experiments in the background. They walk into the model room and as they're talking, they even reference the crow wearing Dr. Andres from that story. Suddenly the lobster pops up, Dr. Waxman. You turned an officer of the law into an evil puppet. You let me no choice. He had to die. And so do you. And he starts shooting at Dr. Waxman now. So he's not Dr. Emerson. William Fickner was a different bad guy all along. <laughs> I love this setting. Yeah, I was going to say like that this too. this model city. Oh, yeah, that's great. I was going to say that too because like, I don't know why, but I like to see a good action scene in a model city. Right. It's just interesting. Yeah, they're, all, it's, they're all giants. I yeah. think it's a cool... It kind of makes it just more interesting in that it's a bad guy there in a room. Right. There's some desks in there and some chairs. It's a fun little thing to draw. And just like you said, Matt, that's that line where he says, you left me no choice. He had to die. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's also mad about that, that um, Dr. Waxman made him kill the chief. The two take cover. And Waxman plans to get the lobster talking. So he asks how he knew that he wasn't Emerson. The lobster says that he knew from the beginning. He knew about this neuromanipulation experiments on monkeys, and he knew it would lead him to his degenerate colleagues. The lobster expected the police would have detained him. But now you know they never did, Waxman says. You're the criminal, not I, remember? The police aren't after me. Justice has still found you, the lobster says, with his gun pointed to Waxman's head. Suddenly, so I love how there's this panel where we see the metal arm grab the lobster's gun. And so now Marty's arrived, and with his bionic arm, he throws the lobster across the city. And then so here's where you really get that feel of like the monster fight or whatever in the city model, Mm -hmm. you know, as Marty is approaching him with that metal arm. Let's put it this way, crab man. Justice found somebody tonight, he says. This is a thing that villains will do when there's an <laughs> animal-based superhero, and there's a lot of them, like Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Call them everything except a spider, just different kinds of bugs. <laughs> Bug-eye like, man, is that supposed crab to, man. Like, but yeah. it's, as, it's meant as an insult, but it's like you're just naming adjacent bugs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if those bugs are better or worse than a spider. Right. It's kind of making fun of it in general, but then those guys tend to be like, they have rhinoceros suits on or something. Right. So it's like, all right, my guy, what exactly here is it that you're making fun of? You're also a ridiculous cliche. Right, right. So I don't know what you're... That's great. I know I'm not knocking the actual writing of it. No, I, no. I, I feel like the people working on this book know that. Yes. And yeah. are including that because it's that yes Yes. so i feel like they're in on that like so anyway i'm not yeah that wasn't supposed to be like a criticism of like ah everybody does this it's no it's funny and good and i like it 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 takes all the tropes but it works them into a way that's kind of that's smart you know yeah and it's it's done artfully it kind of takes that whole idea subverts it a little yeah 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 it's not that the villain is lame 
No, that yeah. A lame guy is the villain. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> or not like I would his his humor has no wit. Right. He's relying on puns. He thinks he's funny, but he's not. Yeah. Right. Classic villain. Right. Not that yeah. I would not that I would characterize anyone as like quote like quote unquote lame, but he is kind of a goober. Right, right. Yeah, right. We cut over to Mr. Wald and he's reading the pirates book. And so who is he sitting here with? Is this like the door guy or who he's got like that that whole like his suit. driver? Oh, is that what Maybe. it is? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So he's reading the newspaper. Walt is reading the book of pirates. And so he's like, he's all obsessed with it now. He's like, you got to read this. There's a guy in here called the lobster too. Some pirate who gets killed. He comes back from the dead. And these are tiny notes. Right here, she talks about trying to find a precedent for the lobster. You know what the word means? Precedent. And he's yeah, like, like FBI, right? <laughs> it's a great gag, yeah. He's like, no, not like FDR. It means something that came before. Something in the past that was like, something now, see? I hate it. <laughs> something now, see? I hate to keep bringing up Mr. Show. I'm sorry. It just reminds me of when the mobster gangster guys oh. are like counting. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the highest number. Like, the highest number. Well, what about 24? <laughs> yeah, 18. Now that's the biggest number. 24 is the highest number. Look, you got 10, then you got 10 more, then it's like, what's this? Four more. 24, forget about it. And, uh, but, I lo- but again, that's something that I feel, they're in on the joke and it's funny. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, he gets up from his chair and he's like gesticulating with the book and he's like, oh, the lobster is an ancestor for this and that. And he's getting all excited about it. And he's like, where is Isog? I can never find him. And Isog's just out there listening. He's all happy. It's all he's going like, according to plan. Yeah. <laughs> and then in this last panel, he's like, hey, I'll trade you the book for the paper. He still wants <laughs> to keep reading about it. Over with the lobster. He's getting his head crushed by this bionic arm. I just love this. It's really great. In the model city. It just In looks the model awesome. city. Yeah, that's right. Crack goes the crab, Marty says. And it's just like a really pulpy scene. The lobster, this bottom panel where he's got all the blood coming out from underneath the cow and stuff like that. Yeah, I want to mention that. So this is what I like about the color on the next few pages. It's not that there's blood that makes it cool. It's that there's the color red. Uh, because yeah. Dave Stewart's palette, you know, it's like orange, blue, some browns, and then you get this red. It really drew my eye to it. And, you know, yeah, right. it's blood. So it's kind of yeah. action oriented and cool. But the red color is what really sells the art on the next few pages. Oh, yeah. And it just raises the stakes, too. Yeah. 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 And I like how they, um, how they draw the one goggle with uh, blood filled up in it. Yeah. You know? Oh, right. Well, okay. not filled up, but like partially, you know. Right, like you can see right. It, you can kind of see it well, pooling like in there. Right. It's crushing his head. It's like in his teeth now. And yeah. yeah. The other brother is kind of trying to call Marty off, but he's like, he's almost getting crazed with the power of having this bionic arm. He's like, this is what I was made for. But in this moment, the lobster is able to grab his ankle and kind of like trip him up so that way he could get away. Well, he's saying this is what it was made for, like the arm. Oh, okay, right. In the middle of all this, Dr. Waxman runs off. Before the lobster can get to his gun, Marty whacks him with a metal arm. And he just starts punching at him. And he's like, you killed a great man when you murdered my father, Crab. Ten times greater than you'll ever be. And tonight, I'm going to see you pay. 
And so in the middle of all this, he's bashing the lobster with that bionic arm. And then the lobster kind of like grabs onto it and then won't let him like pull it back again. And he's like, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? Let go. And then and, he puts his foot on his chest for leverage. too. Oh, right. I love that. That's where he's like, what are you doing? And then so the lobster gruesomely just pulls the <laughs> arm off, right? And it's pretty, it looks pretty painful. Yeah. When you go back to that shot of the lobster looking up at him, and we have the villain's point of view, it looks like he's hanging over the ledge and he oh. could really fall. But the buildings are that exact size. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's so cool. It's really good. Like, he he's a few inches away from him. Right, right. That's awesome. That's super interesting. <laughs> and so when the lobster pulls off the, the arm, he's like, oh, God. He starts running away. The lobster pulls out his gun to shoot him. And then out of nowhere, <laughs> this kind of reminds me of uh, BPRD. Oh, uh, which, one, which 1940s was the first one? 1946? Yeah, where we just I cut so, yeah. at the very end, there was just that thing with the rocket and Herman von Klemp yeah, and the spider is legs. So and, chaotic. You know, and <laughs> like it quickly escalates to like now we're in this, this science whole fiction series. Thing. You're yeah. just like you think you're watching one thing and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what did they call that? Kriegoff? I forget which listener it was, said the correct way would be Kriegoffen. Kriegoffen? Okay. Something like that. It jumps at the lobster, and he's just, like, shooting at it. These panels are amazing by Zonyut, and so now that King Kong analogy has come full circle, right? That's so good. <laughs> it's really good. Isn't there even a Empire State Building in here somewhere? Probably, yeah. I mean, there's the Chrysler Building. When was the Empire State Building built? Oh, the Chrysler Building is from Reign of the Black Flame. That's where oh, it was. Okay. Remember? Yeah, that was, yeah. that's yeah. a callback to that. I think during this series... They were only up to Lake of Fire. Oh, okay. So maybe that hadn't happened yet. Nice. So then the guy's like, "Oh, I thought you were running away, Waxman, but you actually went to he got he went to go get his little control thing, and so he could control this one. They call him Mukali, and so this thing is just like it's got the lobster by the leg, and it's just like bashing him around, swinging him like a rag doll, and then it starts like crushing him in its metal arms." And so the lobster is able to like reach into his coat and pull out this one blade and he stabs the monster in the head so that he knows the radio controls are in there. And he dies in Central Park. In Central Park, Park, yeah. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that's great. (laughs) And so the lobster keeps coming for Waxman. No escape, he tells him. Waxman starts shooting at him. Stop where you are. You're weaponless. And I'm armed, you see. I could kill you. I could do that. But if you go right now, I will let you live. Understand? And the lobster just pulls out one of his grenades (laughs) and pulls the pin. And that's probably one of your favorite panels, Matt, right there, right? Where you get the click. Yes, the zoom in. Yep. (laughs) And from outside, we just see this huge explosion. The building goes up in flames. Inside one of the windows, we zoom in and we see the lobster. He's just totally wrecked. And he just says, justice. Justice. (laughs) Great. So amazing. They could end the series right there. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they could just go, hey, any loose ends or loose ends. And that could be it. But no, we get an even bigger scene. Grand finale. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like you thought, oh, this is a pretty cool setting. But then it's like, what if we had a fight on top of a Zeppelin? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. 
Because you see that a lot with like trains and stuff. And oh, so yeah. there's yeah. like, what could be possibly more ridiculous than this? <laughs> it's just I don't like... want to draw people standing on top of a train. That's been done. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, and have we seen the lobster <laughs> this beat up before? I don't right. think so, oh. yeah. yeah. And um, this chapter five cover is really bright. And so they talked about this a little bit. I, th- I think it was in that article with Mark Tweedo. He asked him about this. And, um, yeah, it's just a real contrast from the other kind of covers that we've seen Zonya to draw. But it makes me want to read it cover. immediately. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. It's like anytime you see Batman in daylight, I always thought that was cool. Right. Yeah. Just the contrast. We open up outside that burning building. The lobster's crew pick him up. And we linger on one of the windows. And then I love this pacing. As we turn the page, we see Dr. Waxman leap out of one of the windows and run down this dark alley. So he got away. Back with the lobster. This is so cool as he's like hanging out the side of the car, just shooting and stuff like that. He shoots at the escaping Casaro brothers. Jeez, it's like the tires are bulletproof, Lester says. But the car isn't. Get me closer, the lobster says. And so he leaps over the car. In that article that Mark Tweedell referenced, Zanya did so many different variations of what this leap was going to look like, how he was going to get the lobster to jump from, from one car to the other. And something like this, maybe you wouldn't think that it would be so difficult, but the process that he went through right. to find the yeah. right motion to evoke the lobster jumping from one car to the other, he was like, how am I going to make this happen? And he did it from a bunch of different angles and stuff like that, so... Um, I'll have to link that post. When he jumps on top of the car, they start shooting up at him, but the lobster quickly shoots and he takes out Frank Cassaro. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome. I like how the lobster actually does get hit when they shoot up. Right. You know, oh, yeah. It gets one in the leg. Because, I mean, you know, like in most movies, it'd be like the heroes, you know. Right. Wouldn't get hit at all. The car screeches down the street and it crashes into some other cars. The lobster leaps off. As the car crashes, Marty Cassaro flies out the front of the windshield. And so the lobster approaches him with a gun. Standing on both of his legs right. for some reason. This was another thing that Zonich talked about in that article was the layout of the city where Lobster Johnson jumps off. He would have jumped into a wall, but he's like, well, this is one of those things that you just, I just didn't put it yeah. in there. Instead, mm-hmm. it just has the sound effect. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that way um, you don't think about that. Yeah. And so, you know, Marty's down there and he's like, fine, go ahead and kill a cripple. My father was trapped in a wheelchair when you shot him. So why not? And so the lobster remembers, you know, from Satan smells a rat. And he's like, do you remember him? Do you realize who you killed? A torturer and a murderer, the lobster says. A rat-hearted fiend who cared more for himself than his own son. I like how he's like, wheelchair. Oh, I remember now. It's like, it's like that happened so to him and just in the past. He's like, I'm done with that. Now I'm on right, this. Yeah. He's just so singularly focused in his exactly, uh, present yeah. mission. And we get a nice panel from Zonich kind of referencing the stuff that we saw in that story. Like you and your brother, a predator feeding on this city. But it's my city, the lobster says, and I'm always watching. I'll always protect my city so the innocent don't have to be afraid. And I love this top panel where they've overlaid the lobster's cow with the city in the background. That is just amazing. I love that. It's uh, reminiscent of that uh, one cover from that one story. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. From Kaput Mortem. You're right. So we see outside the Herald Tribune 
Um, we see Eckert, and then we also see inside Cindy's working on the next part of her article. We cut to Long Island, and we see Dr. Waxman. He's made it to the Gartberg Zeppelin. He plans to escape to Germany, where they will better appreciate his talents. And so I love this. He sits down with a drink. He's all wiping his brow. You'll never reach Germany. The lobster's just there, and he just starts walking. <laughs> I love that. And Waxman runs off. Fucking freaks out. It's amazing. He's like, I'm innocent. Stay away. The bridge. They must have parachutes on the bridge. And then so Harry McTell is there. He kind of corners him off there. Like well, it was a, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and so Waxman doesn't have anywhere to go. So he sees the hatch to go onto the roof of the Zeppelin. And he's like, oh, I have a chance now. He goes up there. And then we see McTell talking to the lobster. He's like, you called it, boss. Where else could he go? The lobster asks. You know what to do now, Harry. Outside, we see these guys, and they're like, oh, look at the Zeppelin. They're watching it go off. And you had a thing that you wanted to talk about here, right, Aubrey, where these two guys are talking. One of them references World War One. This is what story takes place in, what, 1934? Mm-hmm. Uh, World War One. The, the term wasn't coined until 1939. At this time, they should have been calling it the Great War. Uh, uh, oh. They, it's an anachronism bullshit. I'm right, sorry, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually... Yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. I, I appreciate went, you. I appreciate you mentioning that. I went down a rabbit hole with the wrestling thing, and even there's even less consequences to that. Because one guy was talking about, oh, so it, maybe it's not all fake after all. And I'm like, did people? Was that a big thing that people being oh. like, ah, that wrestling's fake, or was that later? And so I was like, rest, like looking up all this stuff, and it was kind of fascinating because it was actually right around the time that people were trying to undo each other's various territories by saying well i'm gonna expose that you guys in the papers oh. and on the radio because you're fake and you're taking people and it's all fixed see right. and people were like it's fixed <laughs> like there was no kayfabe right stuff going on it wasn't really the production that it ended up being so it was wow. in kind of a it was in kind of a transitional period yeah there's all these different variables that are like making this situation happen and people are okay. it's starting to become like Something people talk about more common, like, oh, you know, it's fake, don't you? Right. Even though there wasn't that much production. So, like, all the, even all, like, the masks and the capes, at least in American wrestling, all the masks and the capes weren't quite, it was still super boring, but then they were starting to do this thing where they were like, oh, now he's a champion. Oh, what a, what a dirty loser. I can't believe he would cheat that way. And the ref didn't see it. People were like, oh, my goodness. Oh, but then I there see, was there yeah. was you know this like this one guy for example I watched this YouTube video about like there was a specific guy who made it his business to totally try and ruin other people's territories by being like oh they're fake but we're cool and they're right. fake and but news didn't travel very fast because it was all like on the radio or in the newspapers or it didn't get coverage at all and so there was no like internet or TV or anything and so it was kind of slow moving this thing and then that's when the idea of kayfabe started to pop up a little bit later and. So that, I fell into a whole fucking rabbit That's hole awesome. yeah, myself. I love that. And it's obviously not as important as the topic of world wars, but yeah. Well, it's it's actually something my grandfather used to tell me um, before he passed away. It's oh, like, wow. He, he was like, you know, he was like, it wasn't called World War It wasn't always Dan. called that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that tidbit. But these are all things that, of course, I think we're willing to overlook because it kind of gives the story that flavor. That's historical fiction stuff. Like, yeah. There were Nazis and they were terrible, but what if there was a guy that was like, fuck all you Nazis, I kick you in the jaw. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We like to see it. So it's good. Yeah. 
So as these two mechanics are talking and watching the Zeppelin, they're like, what's that sound? And then one of the planes comes out, flies out from behind them. They have to jump out of the way at the last minute. We cut over back to Waxman and the Lobster. Isn't it time you abandon your pursuit of me? He asks. You won't fire your gun in here. And so he talks about, just like on Kaput Mortem, they were like, you can't fire in here, the hydrogen gas. It's like when they have to explain what an EMP is in every yeah, movie, Yeah, in every right? single movie. <laughs> but I always, I always... That'll mean all the electricity will go out for a yeah. thousand miles. <laughs> but when you're on a plane, you can't fire a gun in the plane. It'll depressurize the yeah, cabin and all to, this stuff. You have and to then, say it, explain and it. And it's like, okay, well, then we all know that that guy's about to fire his gun then because it's like... <laughs> and I think he's also underestimating... Hasn't he seen the lobster in action? Know, like well, this guy would absolutely <laughs> fire a gun in a zeppelin. Well, that's oh, yeah. what he says. He goes, and flames have already failed to kill you once, but justice is bigger than a gun. Jeez. And you've run out of escape routes, and so now Waxman goes onto the top of the zeppelin, and the lobster says, "Dead end." But then suddenly, the airplane that we saw come out of the hangar approaches and we see that lou moskin is riding it so waxman is controlling him with his thing i forgot all about him right yeah, yeah. but yeah he did escape with the bed sheets or whatever yeah thanks to harpo marks right or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and so now waxman says if you step any closer he's gonna fly the plane into the zeppelin and he's like everyone aboard this airship will die everyone aboard this airship is only you and me the lobster says while you were climbing around in the ship's hull, my colleague evacuated the whole ship. And then so he's like, impossible. We're over the ocean. See for yourself. We aren't flying so high as you thought. And so we see that McTell was able to get everybody down through a ladder and using some escape boats. Or what are those called? Lifeboats, I guess. Right. Yeah, he's basically like, you know, while you were fucking around in the interior, right. <laughs> we were busy getting everybody off the ship. <laughs> we're adrift now. You'll drown or suffocate in the stratosphere. Dead no matter what. But that's not good enough for me. And he just starts running at him. Nice. <laughs> Thank God. It's so awesome. And so Waxman... I like how uh, absolutely feral this man is. He is. And Waxman, he pulls the control knob and flies the plane into the Zeppelin. And so I love this pacing, too, where it's, like, about to happen. And you think maybe, like, something might intervene at the last second. But then, yeah, we see it all blow up. And it's very reminiscent of the Hindenburg, which also exploded like this. Real smart of him to keep silhouetting the Zeppelin instead of having to well it's also like that's not the important part of what's happening right. that's not really sure, what we're supposed yeah. to be paying attention to so that's it's, very uh, yeah yeah and i think the scale is yeah. what's key not yes. not the detail absolutely and we see mctell and all the survivors watching from the rescue boats we cut to the next day and that's like kind of that that same shot that we saw before that was it was at night and it had the lobster's face over it oh yeah it totally is yeah On the radio, the newscaster reports that Higgins was being controlled, and the pursuit of the lobster was a direct result of this. And there is very little evidence that the lobster is a threat. The feds will continue to investigate him, but the dollars that have been put behind this by Chief Higgins will instead go towards improving housing and schools. And we see the lobster's crew listening to it on the radio. We cut over to Isog and Wald, and Wald is reading part five. It's titled, Who is the Lobster? A City's Spirit. Wald reads to Isog from the article, 
but it's hard to make an assessment of the lobster without being emotional. In anger, we might call him a killer, the fearful might call him a hero, and those awestruck might call him a ghost. Because facts are scarce when it comes to the lobster, leaving us to see him how we will. There are dead men, yes, but no way to know who really killed them. Eyewitness accounts are numerous, but very greatly. Are the streets safer? Many seem to think so. Yes, the lobster is real, his history, his effect on the city, all real. But who is he? Who we say it is depends on who we are. Can you believe this dame, Waldass? Last week she sounded like she hated the guy. But now, hey, what do you got there? And so Wald is bringing him something else now, right? He's like, remember that supplemental material? Oh yeah, all the pirate stuff? That's exactly what I mean, sir. The pirate stuff. And so Wald opens the case, and it's the mummified hand of El Bogavante, the lobster pirate. Bleeding Jesus, the hand, it's his hand. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. That's a great reveal. Yeah. Uh, I did not see that coming. Yeah, me neither. So it was real. You know what I mean? This whole pirate myth had some sort of credence to it. And somehow this hand has survived. I'm cool with it. It's a whole other thing. I like this one panel here when he's like reading the newspaper and it shows like the lobster's goggles. You see like the kids playing stickball and he's got like that same mask. The the cowl, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a neat touch. (laughs) Yeah, like at the end of the the Avengers, you see the kids like dressing up like the Hulk or whatever. Or at the end of uh yeah, at the end of Captain America, the first one, he's the kids oh, yeah. running around with the uh, garbage pan. Yeah, I came out of a Spider-Man movie one time. I forget which one it was, in the theater, and there was a little kid walking in front of me dressed as Spider-Man with the mask on Super and everything. Super cute. Nice. And I was like, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone, any adult that complains about those movies has totally missed the point. Right. It's that little There's kid. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, that Spider-Man costume. <laughs> it is <laughs> so real good. sad. And we cut over. We get this scene with Cindy. She gets uh, some flowers and it says, I was mad at you, but life's too short for that. See you soon. And then it has an H, right? I don't like this guy. Oh, wait. Uh-oh. So... It's that's an, Harry. That's Harry, though. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. I thought we it like was a cop guy. again. No, I'm no, like, no, no, give no. me a break. Man. Yeah, no, you thought it was Jake, right? I doubt yeah, very much right, that right, she would have right. reacted that way. She'd be like, go fuck yourself right. and throwing him across yeah. the room or something. But no, it's the guy that we like. We like that guy. It's Harry, yeah, because he was mad at that stuff that she wrote in that one part. Right, right. And then we also see Detective Eckert. And he's meeting with the DOI. They're the people that have the lobster's case now. And they're like, why do you want to join us? So now he's looking. He still wants to pursue this, right? It's gotten personal, I guess, for him. Well, he, he'd been working on the case for a while. Yeah. So, and then they took it away from him. And it's just like, you know, he wants to see it through to completion. This was one of my favorite stories. And I think that this is where they really started to tie in all the other stuff from the other stories. Like mm-hmm. they tied in, mm-hmm. we, we've got Cindy Tynan, we've got the detectives who we've come to know. Now we have his crew that we've come to know and they're adding new members to his crew. And we've got this whole thing. It's tying in with Satan smells a rat and it's tying in with kind of kaput mortem with all the Zeppelin stuff. And it like, I don't know, it just feels like this title has kind of really come into its own at this yeah. point. It even ties mm-hmm. in those little short stories, which I really like. 
So we cut to this couple, they're walking along the beach here, and the guy's like, we could have gone anywhere for the weekend, but you're the one that chose Fire Island. This is a thin Atlantic Ocean barrier island off the southern shore of Long Island, New York. It is known for protected beaches interspersed with seasonal resort communities. And so as they're walking along, the dog starts barking, and they see the wreckage from that zeppelin that crashed. And as they're looking at it, she's like, look, and we see this hand come out and they're like, hold on, mister, hold on. You're going to be okay. We see the lobster emerge and he's totally wrecked. I mean, this is, this is really amazing. Like we see the color of his hair. I remember that's what I remember being Mm. amazed by. I was like, oh my God, he's, we know that he's not blonde. You know what I mean? He's got like dark colored hair. They're like, you're going to be okay. And he just says, I know. (laughs) Does he have some kind of a does he have some kind of a supernatural thing going on and he absolutely is leaning into it or no yeah but is it I wonder if it's like a just just under the surface type of deal it's not an outrageous amount of superpowers it's just kind of like you are slightly better than an average person at healing and fighting I don't know right right that pirate hand at the end was a Mm -hmm. a great reminder that there's something supernatural there right. something, which right. which you know if you've read through bprd and seen his ghost yeah that's what i'm saying that. he's a but, ghost but if you're just reading lobster johnson comics, oh okay then... right right i was listening i think i was listening to another podcast or something and they mentioned that indiana jones like his power is basically that he can get punched a million times right and yeah keep going exactly. and that's kind of like the lobster johnson's yeah. power too right so i'm saying he's got a, he's like it's slightly heightened right in the sketchbook we get the designs for the two wrestlers, and here's the page that I was talking about with all the different faces. Yeah. Every single henchman has to be specific, so as not to be confused with any of the characters we've seen earlier. And then, so here's this next page where he says, before he started doing the book in hopes of expanding some of my visual vocabulary and feeling for the period and getting the hats right this time around. And so we just see him sketching out the different outfits. That's super cool. Yeah. And there's a couple pages of that. So much respect for people who are like, hmm, maybe I should up my game by right. yeah. several <laughs> points. I just really, um, it's just really inspiring too, just to be like, oh, maybe I should think more about right. stuff like that too when I do stuff that I'm working <laughs> on. I don't know. It's just, it's really awesome to see that whole process of someone being like, oh, if I'm going to draw this, I got to get better at drawing this. Yeah. yeah. I like that. <laughs> and we also see his designs for the bionic hand. You know, so again, he really mapped the whole thing out. The actual mechanism of the thing is ludicrous, he writes. Of course, with all the (laughs) ball joints and such, a particular (laughs) obsession of mine at an early stage was making it look like it came out of an old movie or a regular arm could fit underneath the metal parts. And he also references Peter Lorre in Mad Love. He says this movie has the best robot hands. And Mad Love with Peter Lorre was also mentioned because he looks just like the Steel Hawk in that movie. Hmm. Yeah, so much of this is just ludicrous, but it's also very enjoyable and entertaining and fun. And I, I like being oh, yeah, able yeah. to just read a story like, okay, we're just going to throw yes. a lot of stuff out the window and have a good time here. And uh, one thing that they talked about also in that interview with Mark Tweedell and they mentioned here is Marty Cassaro. His eyebrows are based on Albert Dorn, okay. who was a famous actor who had eyebrows like that. And he goes... Uh, People ask, where do you get your ideas? Now you know. But it's like you're always talking about casting decisions. Right, yeah. Like they're also thinking, about, thinking about that, yeah. They're thinking right. about movie people and the way 
people's faces look and what's uh, distinctive. Yeah. Oh, this you guy know, had interesting like eyebrows. Yeah. I'm going to use that. Like, I love that's really, that. Yeah. yeah. He also talks about Dr. Waxman here. This is where I was saying coat too large, not fitting him. And we, yeah. we see all the little controls and everything. We also see the designs for Mukali, the gorilla. About a half a dozen variations you won't ever see. This one combines elements of Marty Cosaro's mechanical arm as well as Mignola's design for the Krigafi in Conquer Worm. Neat. Yeah, so what is the connection there? So this guy obviously started with the neuro manipulation stuff. Like I was thinking like, does he teach Von Klemp or does he become Von mm. Klemp? Because he was like, he was like, oh, well, I'm going to go to the Germans. They'll better appreciate my abilities. You Did know, he get away? I don't know. I thought he went down with the Zeppelin, but the lobster got away. Maybe he just survived as a head or something, and later he becomes Von. That's what I was thinking about because I was like, "What's the connection between the the gorillas?" Because they certainly set it up like he is the one who came up with the idea here. Hmm. Well, there was a letter during this series that inquired about that and said, "Finally, Von Klempt has been hinted at a lot recently. Hopefully, we'll be seeing him again before too long." And that's from Adam Paxman from Liverpool, England, who is a regular letter hack. And Scott says, Adam, I'll just say that paying attention when you read these books pays off. Okay. Mm. So a little cryptic, but you never know with these guys. Yeah, let us know what you think about that. Um, we also get his designs for this uh, woodsman version, one of the brothers. What was his name again? Davy Crockett, king of the wild yeah. frontier. And so here he's sketching <laughs> out those... American frontiersman outfits. How did their pants work exactly? These are the <laughs> things that shorten the lifespans of comic book artists, Zomnich writes. Oh, man. Uh, that guy's name was Obadas Dasher. Oh, Dasher, right. Okay. Thank you for that, Matt. Is there a way to find out when belt loops were invented? Or did... <laughs> See, I mean, these are the things yeah, that shorten the lifespans yeah. of comic book yeah. artists. That's what he said. <laughs> it's a course you take for fashion design called costume. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, actually. Like, yeah. why do blue blazers have brass buttons or gold buttons on them? Mm. You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, why? So why? Why do they call them blazers? Right? Do you mm. know? Do you know so. why? Though? <laughs> yeah. Well, the queen was gonna go on the ship, her royal majesty's the blazer. That was okay. the name of the ship. And the captain was like, uh, we got to dress up. So everyone put on blue coats and they started okay. calling them blazers after That's that. That's so interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, right. they, and, and they had those buttons. And yeah, there's there, everything has a history, but you could just look up costume design or something like right that on. for, for so cool. fashion design and, and learn all about it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. We also get more of Zonyuch's layouts on the covers. And like we saw in the trade paperback sketchbook section for Satan Smells a Rat, he does a lot of different versions of these covers, and some of them are unused and some of them aren't. Um, there's a really cool one that's got like him on one side and Higgins on the other side, like squaring off. That one wasn't used, but that would that might have been a cool cover. Um, and there is one really amazing one that is almost like fully rendered that I'm going to post where there's like a car flying over him. Or yeah. something like that. That's it looks really so cool. Cover. Yeah, I'm going to have to post that one. And then we also see him sketching out the design for the trade paperback cover. 
Sketches for the cover of this book, almost exactly the same size as in my sketchbook. Also done with watercolor. I like the blue one a lot, but all of them were deemed too gorilla heavy. Ultimately, I went for the numbers and tried to include as many things from the book as I could. And since I was trying to fill in Mike's very big shoes here, it was nerve-wracking. And then lastly, we get a Zanyich pinup of Abe Sapien in Oregon from the 31 Days of Abe from Multiversity Comics. That's a really cool Abe. I love seeing Abe in the Zanyich style. And he kind of does that kind of noir. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's in a trench coat and there's a lot of shadows, you know. So anyway, I'll post these online for you guys to check out. Great Lobster Story. This is my favorite one. This is one of my favorite Lobster Stories. When this series came out, I was just blown away by what they were able to do with this character and just how much they've built into the universe over just like two trades of stories, I think is really amazing. And this is the Lobster creative team. Oh yeah, Zanyich is amazing on this title. I love whenever we see him draw the lobster. Although that Seb Fumara was badass on last week's episode. He's my favorite for sure. All right, and so next week we won't have Matt on. I'm glad we were able to have you on your birthday episode, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, Enjoy your birthday weekend, Matt. Yeah, enjoy it. Thanks. Thank you. It's going to be one part anticipation one part recovery (laughs) (laughs) with some partying in between yeah yeah all right man excellent and so we will be back with another awesome episode next week we'll be going back in time again but to a different series and so i'm excited to get to that and now aubrey's gonna say all the things all right everybody uh let us know what you think of this week's lobster johnson get the lobster you can send us a hey you damn guys at hellboy book club at gmail.com follow us on facebook at hellboy book club podcast and on instagram and twitter at hellboy book club you can also find the discord link in the reading order in our facebook about section and then always a uh, special thanks to Paul from Gossahan for the uh, amazing music that you provided for us. Thank That's you. his jazz piano that, that was I've been so putting badass. at the end of these episodes. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it fit to the time period. Yeah, it goes well. <laughs> thank you to Mark Trudell for uh, helping John with the reading order. And then always thank you to John for shit, everything you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Next week, we are reading... Hellboy in the BPRD, 1952. Ooh, exciting. Back to Hellboy. So you know what to do. Grab your single floppies. Grab your trades. Grab a digital. Borrow it from a friend. Go to the library and check it out. Go to your library and use the Hoopla app. And check us out next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm the lobster, see? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Matt Strackbine. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, justice is everywhere. Yeah.